Look, you're not you going to do it. Do something, man, big boy. I'm not. You're the one talking about doing something to me. I ain't doing nothing to you. I'm here. What? Don't worry, save it all. Save it all. What? I'll do it like a challenge. I'm going to get paid to knock you out. I'll do it like a challenge. And it's going to be easy. You beat Shelly over 10 just about. After 8 rounds, do you think you beat him? No, you didn't. I fought him over 8, so don't even try to take anything from that. Yeah? You fought, you, you fought 9 journeymen and stopped 3 of them. You're not going to knock anybody out. You, you knocked out 3 out of 9 journeymen. How the fuck do you think you're going to stop me? You crazy. Bro, we can't do nothing. I'm gonna beat you up. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. And I fixed it. He was like, "Take it off." I was like, "What? <laughs> what? You fancy me?" And um, he sort of just started twitching his mouth at me. And then um, I was just like, "Bro, like, you need to chill out. Like, you're, look at you're struggling. You've got a woolly hat on, or hood on, and about four layers. You're struggling to make the weight. You're fucked." And that just set him off. <laughs> he just fucking lost his shit at that point. What's good people? Welcome back. Hope you've missed me. Glad to be back here on the number one podcast in the sport where we have no idea what Rick Glazer actually does. I wish someone did know. You know maybe that's a question I should have asked the guests on this podcast. Because today's one of my one of my favorite episodes. Like the episodes I do on my own are fun, but I love catching up with people that I have a lot of time and respect for. And Today's guest, what you've seen from the title, you know who it is. Um, Alum of Repton Boxing Club, boxed internationally for Nigeria at the World Championships. Did his thing in the ABAs, did his thing in the Haringey Box Cup. You know, well-respected amateur, well-respected around the London scene, turned professional, gave you epic fights with Zach Chelly, gave you epic fights with Cody Davis and gave you a thrilling fight with Fedor Chudinov. And, you know, let's not underestimate how exciting that was and how important that fight was and how brave that was because that set the tone for people taking legit risky fights. Um, the painful thing for me as a friend is I never got to see him in a boxing ring after that. But I think by the end of this discussion you hear today, you'll realise that he's in a happy place and we're currently witnessing the metamorphosis of Umar Sadiq and I like to see that growth and that development in someone and I have so much respect for the risks that he's taking and I hope he applies all the intelligence, the skill, the discipline and the experience from his life and in boxing as well to become another Brit that cracks it over there. So I think just important admin things, he now has his own website www.umarsadiqallonword.com and I think that's where you'll see the show reels and the modeling shots and all that sort of stuff as he transitions from being a sportsman to being a performer. I think you're going to enjoy this. It's two hours, so make sure you're walking the dog or your water, what do you call that stuff? Uh, paddle boarding like Vladimir Klitschko. Make sure you're doing all of that and I don't think there's any wasted words. We we, we're pretty open in the conversation, actually. And it, I think you will enjoy it because you don't hear boxers talking like this normally. You, there's a lot of articulating what happens behind the scenes, the stuff that you don't get to see. So this provides a little bit of flavor. And I think you guys will all enjoy it. So as always, if you like the content, feel free to share it. Feel free to tag people you feel that need to hear it as well. And, you know, we'll keep pushing the envelope and keep trying to deliver stuff that the other outlets can't possibly give you. 
And with no further ado, I'm going to hand over to the interview with Umar Sadiq. The first thing I want to start with, Uma, is the Tudin of fight. Not necessarily the aftermath, but the actual fight itself. And just to just for context, I remember I was on holiday when you fought. It was it was on a Friday, wasn't it? If I remember correctly, it was a Friday and night. I was, I was holed up somewhere near Torquay, and I don't think I've got that emotional about a fight in a long time. You know, I've literally <laughs> every every jab I was throwing, but. What I loved about that fight was that was what I call a taking your balls in your hands kind of fight because you didn't have to do that. You could have coasted along, but you said, right, I want to make that step up. So in terms of that step up, from, from the beginning of that fight and as much of it as you can remember nearly two years hence, just talk us through that fight, you know, what you wanted to do, how it felt in there, you know, any differences you felt between Chudnov and the guys you'd fought before. All right, so... The, I think it's important to build the add some context to going into the fight. Um, a, I took the fight because obviously I believed I was going to win, and um, I took on the, some. I took it on essentially on seven days' notice, and some of the stipulations that I had were that we had to have mutual officials, and um, there were one or two other things, but mutual officials was a big part of it. And then we got to Russia, went through fight week, normal antics. They would ask us to get picked up at, I don't know, 9 a.m. for something that started at 2 p.m. just to waste our time and get in the way, that kind of stuff. So that was all fine. It was our way of expected. And then after the weigh-in, uh, I was in a van with you know my team and then Francis Warren was with us and he, he comes off of a call and he goes, ah, oh, fuck. Um... So we're like, what? And he says, they said that they couldn't get any visas for any of the officials. Mind you, now that I'm saying it, I'm like, mm, was he actually speaking to anyone? I don't know, whatever. But <laughs> um, he's like, they said they couldn't get any visas for any of the foreign officials. So all the officials are going to be Russian. Like, so the judges and the ref, everyone. So I was like, what? He's like, well, it's up to you what you do now. I was like, well, I've been here all week. It's literally the day before the fight. Like, at this point, I might as well fight, right? But what what I did was um, I basically said to them, I, I got them to agree that if the fight goes 12 rounds and I lose the points, then I get to activate a rematch clause. Um, and then the other thing was they had to pay a fine. I won't disclose how much. So they agreed to those terms, and I was like, okay, cool. So then... On the day of the fight, we had the ref in our changing room um, whilst we are doing my hand wraps and whatnot. He was cool. He was blessed. I'm like, okay, cool. Maybe they're not so bad. And then I get in the fight and he literally warns me three times in the first minute. Not public warnings, but he's like, you know, stop hitting the back of the head and you're holding, I'm going to do this and that kind of stuff. And this is literally within the first minute of the fight. So now he's got me in my head. I'm thinking they they obviously didn't try to get visas for anyone else, and this ref is already looking for reasons to disqualify me or that point. So I have to win every second of every every round, and I have to avoid any clinches or hitting the back of the head or anything like that. So off the bat, that affects the way that I'm fighting, and it throws a big part of my game plan out the window. So we um, we're going with a fight, and I'm doing the most, and I'm I'm having a very good first few rounds 
but I'm burning a lot of energy doing it because I'm of the, I'm of the mindset that I have to win every second of every round. So then um, round four comes. It might have been round three, but I think it was round four. And I don't know what it was. Something happened. My vision went blurry. And then my depth perception started to go. So I couldn't tell if Trinidad was right in front of me or if he needed a step to be in range to hit me. But on top of that, my vision was always also blurry. So that was very strange. And I didn't say anything to my team because I didn't want to rattle them or I didn't want them to throw the towel in or whatever. Because a part of me was like, I'm doing so well, I could still do this. And every time I went in a boxing ring, I would always like, basically my attitude is, I'm here, I'm prepared to win or else. No matter what my body is trying to tell me, my mind is stronger. And if my body really has had enough, it will give up on me. So there's a saying I used to say all the time, you know, when our trainer Dan Aziz Lawrence Acoli and all that, and I would always say to them, because everyone would always be like, Uma, how are you so thin? I'm like, because I'm willing to go there. You guys are not willing to go there. And then one day someone was like, where is there? And I said, I don't know where there is, but I'm prepared to find out. And that's essentially the attitude I had in that fight because I had it in every fight. So I was like, I'm prepared to go there. And I was just like, doing the most, doing the most. And then, um, I was having great moments and obviously he was a home fighter. Any little thing he did, his crowd would cheer. So typically when the crowd was quiet, I was like, I'm doing great. And then when the crowd would cheer, I'm like, oh, damn, I've got to win the next minute. Otherwise, they're going to give him the round. And then halfway through the fight, well, corner like, yo, like, you need to calm down. You're blowing yourself out. Like, calm down. And I was like, nah, but I've got to win every second. And they're like, yeah, but you're ahead of the scorecards. Just like, chill. I'm like, really? They're like, yeah. I was like, nah, you guys don't get it. They're trying to finesse me. I didn't say that, but that was my mindset. So I'll go back out and I'll just do the same thing again. And then that went on and went on up until the um, very last round of the fight. He had me on a rope and then he was letting shots off. Actually, before I get to that, so differences between him and other opponents I've had, um, it was just stuff like I would tuck up, so chin down, um, hands up by the cheekbones, um, elbows tucked into the body, so I'm well covered and anything that gets around the body ain't going to hurt much. But this guy was just punching around the back of my guard. So he was not even punching the head, but he was punching where the back of the head meets the neck. He was just hitting anything he could. And his hands were solid. So he was doing that. And then when I would hit him, typically I would hit someone and the person would be wary of what might come next. So they might back off to figure out where they went wrong, you know, that kind of stuff. There's just certain shots that you throw that would normally buy you time. And by time, I mean literally a split second, but that's so much when you're in a boxing fight. And this guy just wasn't reacting to any of that. He just didn't give a damn. And I knew he was hard-headed going into the fight, but, and I didn't load up in so many shots, but there were some clean shots I hit him with, and he was just not caring what it was. Um, so those are the big differences, I think. And the, the, the hitting around the back of the guard thing um, was also something, because then there's like, well, I can't just tuck up and you know, maybe catch and shoot because there's hardly any catching unless he's going to, you know, he's going to miss because he missed. Um, so I guess from that, I learned have an active defense or have active defensive hands rather than stationary. Uh, but back to the last round. So in the last round, he gets me in a rope and then he's letting some shots off and I'm thinking he's going to have to stop. There's been a 12-round fight and a, or at a hard pace. So he's going to have to stop. And then I'm going to have my goal. But then that never happened because the ref jumped in. And I put in so much into the fight that I was 
really running on fumes. But when I realized that the fight was ended, I just passed out. I didn't drop. I, I mean, I fell back in the ropes. Um, Adam caught me. And then um, the next thing I remember was I was like dazed. I'm um, sitting down on the chair. That the action of sitting down on the chair and then thinking, oh, damn, that fuck. I fucked it. I fucked it. First, I, first I was like, am I dreaming? Then I was like, did I get knocked out? Then I was like, no, I fucked it. Ah, oh, fuck, I fucked it. And then my body just sagged, like my whole body language is just like, damn, man, I can't believe I lost and I got stopped. And then, um, yeah, so that was the fight. And then after, I don't know how much whoever's listening knows, but after we're waiting to be water tested in the back and then we're waiting to pee so they can get urine samples and I had a headache, I was nauseous, I was throwing up. And I was like, this ain't right. So I asked my team to go to a hospital to get a brain scan to make sure everything's cool. This is like 11 p.m., maybe 12. And we ended up going to about six or seven different hospitals before we found one that um, had the right equipment to um, do the scan and give me a diagnosis. And that was at 5 or 6 a.m. And um, they were like, you're going to need to stay in. And I was like, um, no, it's cool. I'll come back on Monday when your neurological team are in. And they were like, no, you're going to have to stay in. And um, that's when I realized the severity of what subdural hematoma is because I didn't know what it was. Even when Doyle was telling me, I was like, okay, cool. So medical term told me I've got a headache. I'll see you on Monday. And then I know you need to chill. Um, so, yeah, that's the recap. Wow, because that, that adds a little extra context because obviously I knew bits and bobs of the story because we've spoken since. But mm -hmm. the thing I remember about that fight was the surprise that the general public had because like up until that point you're you were almost seen as a seen as a small hall guy who came good and ended up you know in a frank show and mm. then you fought Chudinov and people suddenly went if if he can even be competitive against Chudinov mm. we, we want to see him in those british level fights he doesn't necessarily have to win but if he can perform at that level we know that he's better than small hall because if you remember Jermaine mm. Brown, they went out afterwards and fought the, the, the brother. Yeah. And with hindsight, do you almost wish you, you had fought Dimitri? Because I think you would have walked that fight. Yeah, so not, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, for, definitely would have walked it. But even with um, Fedor, if I had like a proper camp, just to put more context, I literally got a call from Francis Warren as I was waiting to collect my luggage in Spain. So I went to Spain on a holiday and as I'm waiting to collect my luggage, Francis Warren rings me and he's like, do you want to take this fight? And I was like, when? And he was like, oh, I can't remember, but it worked out to be like 10 days or something. So I had to cut my trip short and come back to the UK. And he, no, actually, no, it was about two weeks at the time, maybe. Um, yeah, so I had to cut my trip short after a few days to come back. And then even then, because uh, I thought we negotiated a fight, and then they brought up some other stuff. And I was like, well, if that's the case, and I'm not taking it. And then it was up until seven days before that we knew. But point is, had I had, have a, had a proper camp, um, even just a few weeks, because, you know, I lived a life, and I did 12 rounds on essentially a week's notice. Um, it would have made a difference. But also just to have a situation where I'm not fighting, feeling like I have to overcompensate to not get robbed. Um, which is PTSD from the amateurs, I think, because I got robbed so many times in amateurs. 
because I thought it was a hell of a performance. I genuinely, I was sat there and I was like, I was like, Uma wasn't lying. I remember saying this at the time. Because like, no. you and I speak, and I remember after the Zach yeah. Kelly fight, and you were like, listen, I'm better than all of these guys. And I'm like, but you did kind of lose to Zach. And you're like, no, you don't understand, Terry. I am better <laughs> than all of these guys. I just need the chance. Yep, 100. And even a Kelly, oh, by the way, just to, I remember I, I had my pro debut on a Frank Warren show. I was a Frank Warren fighter until the Chelly fight. And then it became a gray area where um, they weren't giving me fights. And I was like, yo, like, I'm contracted to have X amount of fights a year. What the hell? And they're like, well, the contract was dependent on you being undefeated. And I was like, wow. So it was a matter of I have a wait till Frank wants to give me a day because it's convenient or take matters into my own hands. So I took matters into my own hands and stayed active and I did what I had to do and I made my own fights and other promoters shows and I did that until when they thought that they were going to um, use my name to give Cody Davis a good opponent and I upset that apple cart. But circling back to the Zach Chelly fight, even that was under messed up circumstances. I trained well for the fight. I trained earnestly, disciplined, all of that, fit, sharp, strong, the whole lot. And I remember two weeks before the fight, having a conversation with the coach that was training me at the time about Zach. And then he said something. And I was I was like, no, no I had said something about keeping Zach at bay. And he said something that didn't quite go with that. And I was like, uh, what are you saying? And he was like, um, isn't he the same height as you? I was like, no, he's shorter than me by a couple of inches. And then it started to dawn on me. I was like, hold on a minute. Do you even know what he looks like? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, how tall is he? And he didn't know. And then, because the whole camp as well, I'd ask him like game plans that I would spar and I'll be like, um, how is that sparring and what would you tweak for Zach? And he'll be like, no, nah, it was cool. You didn't get hit much. It was fine. And I was like, um, okay, maybe because he's just got such a relaxed attitude. Maybe he's that confident in what I've got. But then that two weeks before the fight, I was like, damn, he actually just doesn't know what we're doing. Um, and then on the day of the fight, he turned up five minutes before my ring walk. So I was in a venue leading up to the biggest fight of my career at the time, a full fight on television, a televised slot where I can't change it. And I'm in a change room, like this big change room of a bunch of other teams. And I've got the likes of Eddie Lamb and Al Smith coming to me going, Uma, are you okay? Do you need any help? And I'm like, no, I don't because I'm trying to protect, you know, the coach's integrity at the time. So I'm like, no, we've got everything under, under control. And then 45 minutes before the scheduled time, my manager at the time asked um, if we can have the time moved. And they're like, no, it's a televised slot. We can't change it. So then we had to get someone random to do my hand wraps, which isn't the, the worst thing ever. Like, it was fine. But my hand wraps were getting done. And, about, and whilst my hand wraps were getting done, Nathan Gorman was on fighting someone. And I've got a whip coming in and out going, if this fight goes, if this fight stops now, it doesn't go the distance, you'll run immediately. So make sure you're ready. I'm like, well, you can see my hands getting wrapped. So it's like turmoil in the changing room. Um, don't have a coach. Uh, then, And I'm not even thinking about a coach. I'm just thinking of getting my hands wrapped. And then someone comes in and goes, who's going to be in your corner? And I was like, damn, I didn't even think of that. So now I'm looking around the room thinking, who am I going to ask to be in my corner? And then my hands get wrapped. So they bring gloves and then the gloves don't fit. The gloves are wrong. So they have to go get another set of gloves because the, the girls are 40, actually, not wrong. Um, and eventually, I, was, I, I asked Martin, Martin Bowers from Peacock Gym to be in my corner, and he was like, yeah, of course, I'll help you. 
And then just as we went to start doing pads, um, my coach at the time walks in. And this is literally five minutes before the uh, ring walk. So I didn't warm up, like no stretching, no getting my heart rate up, nothing at all. And I went into the fight literally afraid of getting a cramp because every time I train, I warm up. So I'm like, well, if I don't warm up and under these high stakes, what happens if I get a cramp? Then it's a stoppage. So I spent the first few rounds trying to make sure that I'm nice and warm and I don't get a cramp. And I guess it was the arrogance of me at the time because I was like, I can throw away three or four rounds and still knock him out. Um, and it didn't quite work out that way because I ended up getting knocked down off balance, but still. And so Zach won the fight. You know, kudos to him. God's went inside that day. But all of that, I say, to back up why I was telling you all this time, yo, I'm better than all these guys because I was. And the Zach Chelly fight, although everyone only sees what happens after he came out on TV, right? But no one sees what happens before. And also, by the way, I was ill going into that night. So I woke up twice from cold sweats that I had to change from the night before. Nearly pulled out of the fight. Um, my whole team knew about it. And then the whole thing with the coach not showing up and yada, yada, yada. And I still went in a fight and put in the performance that I did against Zach Chelly where people were like, we know you lost, but that was great. And I was like, well, if I could do that when I'm sick and my coach turns up five minutes before the walk-in and no warm-up, then what do I do when I'm not sick and I do have a good warm-up? I was like, no, people need to understand, like, there's so much to offer here. Yeah, that, that was such a crazy night. That was one of the maddest nights. And then number one, we got caught in the same traffic jam that your coach got caught up in, but like we were just spectators, so it was right. So we, we I think I arrived as your starting round two against Zach. And then that was the night yeah. where it just properly kicked off. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. with Johnny Garner and whatnot. Yeah, Probably. by the way, don't make excuses for him because I still stand by this. Officials were there, there were so many in the audience, the T V crew were there, the other teams were there. Martin Bowers lives in Canning Town and this other coach lived in Canning Town. So if Martin Bowers was there, you could have been there. You just didn't leave your house early enough. There's no, no excuse. No, 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 hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, no, because yeah. my attitude is with most things whether I'm coaching or I'm competing, I always like to get to the venue early and I walk around mm. and I go, where am I going to sit? And I put my stuff down, I secure my territory. I walk through because I don't want to have to think about things when it's go yeah. time. Actually, yeah, sorry to cut you off. I just realized I said Martin Bowles lives in Kennington. He doesn't. But either way, he was there and there were other people from East London that were there in time. But anyway, sorry, going. Yeah, it's all these small things because I can remember having the the call on the Sunday and just hearing the sort of behind the scenes stuff. And I was like, wow, that, all of that happened. And mm. it's, it's crazy. And like you said, a lot of people never see what goes on behind the scenes in terms of fights. And there's, there's a lot of chaos backstage, mm -hmm. generally speaking, uh, but, but the TV product looks smooth, but backstage there's a lot of stuff that happens. Yeah. And it could even Sometimes, just be yeah. two rival coaches. You know, someone said something two years ago and this is the first time they've seen mm -hmm. each other. <laughs> Did I say, say it to my face? Yeah. But let's... The fight I'm always interested in is the Cody Davis fight because that... Because I came after the Zach Chelly fight and I remember a lot of people were like, oh, this is an easy one for Cody. I can remember, this is why Sam Jones blocked mm. me because Sam Jones mm. was saying this was an easy fight for Cody. And I think I, mm. I just said to him, mate, you're a fucking idiot. And I told him, I'd put a grand against his grand that Umar beats him. 
Oh, so you want money too? Well, he wasn't built for that. He's not like Andy Ailey. Uh, Ailey takes the best <laughs> and pays them up. But oh, yeah. Alien paid you eventually. Well, he paid me 180 out of 200. So yeah. <laughs> standard Frank Warren practices, right? <laughs> I don't know. They've always paid me what they owe me. So I can't say. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't say that because I might get a letter. No, I'm just joking. I'm joking. <laughs> Joker. No, so so him and I argued, and when you told me you were fighting Cody Davis, I remember the first thing I said to you was, "That's an easy fight for you." And mm-hmm. you said, because it was a classic Uma, because you never even say why. You just go, go on. <laughs> that is a, that, yeah, that's when I know yeah. you're intrigued. You're like, go on. Yeah. And I just said, you're a non-committal fighter. Cody Davis looks good against people who come after him. And I said, if you can stand off him for long enough, where all of mm. that, that fake kind of slipping, you know, that kind of Josh Kelly type of out of range posing. That's what I call it, where they just slip yeah. and out of range. I said, at some point, yeah. he's going to come looking for you. Mm-hmm. And then that's when you've got him. When he comes looking for you, you've got him. And it'll be an yeah. easy night. As long as you can make him come to you, it was an easy night. And then it turned out, like, I think that's probably one of your easiest fights. Um, I would say, I wouldn't say easiest now, because I stopped a lot of people in the first or second round. But I would say it was, it didn't require too much, and this is no slight on him. It didn't require me to do too much out of the box. Like I was, I was, I was able to be comfortable in myself because going into the fight, I watched enough tapes of him to see that. Hold on a second, I got a call coming in. Um, send the voice now. <laughs> um, and then I've just sent my wife the voice now to speak to you, Terry. So, well, to the podcast actually. Um, one second, I'm just going to message her on a call. Cool. Right, are you still there? Still here. Hello? No, I'm still here. All right, okay. Uh, yeah, so I'd watched enough of him because there was enough content about him from the amateurs to the pros. So when you look at the fundamentals of what's going on, there were, there were only a limited number of things that he ever did in terms of the way he attacked, when he attacked, and what he did defensively. So all I had to do was make sure that I keep an, I make sure that I consider the, what he does defensively when I'm attacking. And when he was attacking, it was always going to be one of three different things that he did. And I'm not going to go into specifics about them because he might still be fighting. I don't know. Um, and I, obviously, I wish him the best. But yeah, so when I went into the fight, I almost knew what I was expecting. And for the most part, because I know I'm fitter than most, and again, I'm willing to go there, I was okay with like just letting him work for the first three or four rounds. And they say never make a game plan um, based on your opponent getting tired. But my game plan was based on him slowing down just a little bit, just enough for me to step it up on him. And that's exactly how it went. And then at times, I was even on the inside with him, just letting my hands go because he was waiting for the perfect shot whilst I was just letting my hands go. Because what I found interesting about that was, if you remember, he was the he was the golden boy and he had Sam Jones and Adam Morley and David Hay was talking about how this guy could go a long way. All of this before your fight, there was all this hype and this talk. And really, they were talking mm-hmm. as if you were just a stepping stone. It's like, well, if he beats Umar... It's a nice little, you know, 
fight at the new weight because he started off at light heavy, if you remember, and he dropped down mm-hmm. to 168. Yeah. And yeah. I was, I was I'm watching that coverage. I'm like, oh, they're in for a rude awakening. And I remember just thinking, this is when the Cody Davis train stops. Yeah. And I remember at a press conference, it was um, Steve Lilly. What was it? Damn, what's his name? Um, his name is Lilly. Steve Lillis, yeah. Um, he was asking questions. And so he asked me questions first because I was on the fire as a B-fighter, right? Um, and he asked me, you know, um, why do I think I can win this fight? Um, I've been on the road for a while and I'm happy to be back on Frank Warren's show. And I was like, yeah, you know, all of that. And then when when he went to ask him questions, he said, um, you know, winning this fight, um, no, he goes, winning this fight would mean that you get to fight for the British title. So how does that feel for you, you know? looking forward is that something you're looking forward to so I interrupted him and I said yo like you never asked me about what happens after I win the fight you, but you're asking him straight off the bat so clearly you've made you've made it clear who your favourite is and who you expect to win um, and he's like no 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 it's not like that I said no it's cool I'm not taking it personal I just want to make it public that you thought that he was going to win so that after the, after the fact it will be recognised that I called you up on it and I shot all you guys up <laughs> and then they carried on but yeah I, I very much knew that I was I was brought in to lose but like you said rude awakening I, I knew something they did it. and he's never recovered has he Cody Davis never recovered from no, that I don't, I don't think he's fought since and I don't know why because I guess they must have really thought that I was a walkover to the point where that was a career defined, um, career ending fight for him well so far because if they gave me any respect he would have carried on and in a weird way, also, even going to Russia, like Cody is actually one of my um, motivations because I, I actually wanted to do so good in Russia so that people can be like, oh, maybe that wasn't such a bad loss for Cody. Like, in a weird, selfless way, I was actually thinking that. Um, but yeah, that's just the way it goes, man. So, so after Cody, there was this really interesting phase of your career in like I kind of lived through this one a bit because there was the whole will they, won't they between you and Lerone Richards. Because like you said, that fight was for whoever won that fight was going to fight for the British, right? Against Lerone mm-hmm. Richards. Yeah. And, and that was, I'll, I'll let you tell the story, but God, that was a soap opera. Um, <laughs> it was. Absolutely <laughs> everything was involved in this one, but I'll let you tell the story. So the Cody fight was on February the 22nd, 2020. Um, no, February, was it February the 20th, 2020? No, it was February the 20th, 2020, because I remember seeing all those numbers. Two is my favorite number. I was born on the 2nd of February, and then the fight was on the 20th of February, 2020. I was like, this has got me written all over it. Like, I've got this. This is my day. Um, and then after the fight, I went to Dubai, because um, uh, a guy that I worked with at the time, he was advising me, and really looking after me behind the scenes, um, had promised me a trip to Dubai if I win. And I was at bet. Um, so anyway, went to Dubai after, and then I literally got back from Dubai at the beginning of March, and I was told that I could fight Larone for the British title, uh, I want to say beginning of April it was. Um, yeah, it was like the April 17th, actually, maybe, or something like that. So I was like, okay, um, that's like, six weeks away but it's okay I'll take it because um, even though I come back from um, holiday I just had a hard training camp before the holiday so I figured it'll be a good time 
for British title match sixties with my sleep behavior mentality. I'm like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So we negotiate what we negotiate, and then I agree to the fight, and then they send the contracts over and whatnot, and then we do that. Then, um, but mind you, when they send me the contract for Leron for the fight against Leron, I know there was a British title involved, but the contract stipulated that if I win the fight. I have to fight on the Frank Warren shows for X amount of fights or X amount of years, depending. When I had a contract for the Cody fight, there was nothing about if I win. So after the Cody fight, I was actually free to just walk off and do whatever I wanted. Um, but that's just to show how much they didn't think I was going to win. Anyway, back to the Lerone situation. I agreed to fight. And then obviously everybody knows COVID. We went into lockdown. We're like, okay, it's going to get pushed back maybe till May. And then it was maybe June. Then it was maybe July. And then around June, sort of July times, there was like light at the end of the tunnel. So we're talking about having a date. Um, I think, it, actually, I think the initial date was going to be in July, that end of July. And then Lerone couldn't make it. I can't remember what the specific reason was. Remember, oh, he, oh, 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 he mysteriously found out his wife was like eight months pregnant. No, that came after. Oh, did that it? That came after. Yeah, so the July, the July, the initial July date, it might have been beginning of July, actually. I can't remember what it was, but I know it's because he was out of shape, 100%. And then after that, they tried to set another date for end of July. And again, I can't remember what the reason was for uh, that. Uh, and uh, yes. So if you remember, there were issues in his camp. Yeah, so he had moved to Dave Caldwell. So yeah. he left Al Smith and went to Dave Caldwell. And my thinking is that Dave Cole, like, so I, my thinking is this, is that him and his team, his management team had agreed to the fight and then Dave Caldwell's looked here and gone to them, what are you doing? That's what I think happened. Well, I don't think Leron was, it's serving me himself. I know Leron, I actually like Leron. We boxed at Repton together and all that. But obviously when your contract to fight someone, they become the up. So yeah. he was very much the up during that time. But, I like him as a person. I don't think he's a coward. So I don't think it's Lerone swerving the fight. I think it was Dave Colwell behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I could be wrong. No, because when we spoke at the time, I remember, I remember ringing you when, when the rumours of Lerone leaving Alan going to Dave and I said, mate, this fight's never going to happen. And you said, yeah, yeah, I remember you said that. And you dropped the classic Uma, go on. And I was like, like Caldwell will never put his guys in a Frank Warren show. He just will not do it. He's too much of an Eddie Hearn loyalist. And I remember saying to you, they go back to the days of Caldwell boxing. Right. I said, Dave will never do this. Yeah, you actually told told me Lerone was going to leave Frank Warren. Um, I remember. And I remember I mentioned it to Francis Warren at one point. um, And he was like, oh, no, that's not going to happen. And then it happened anyway. Um, but, um, what, cause I, I remember it was something about, it was, yeah, that's it. It was when we were talking about a Trudinov fight. And uh, what was it? I don't know. Basically, it was something to do with the British title and me saying, look, Laurent's probably going to leave. So what happens if he leaves and leaves the British title, then what happened? You know, cause you guys are trying to promise me all this stuff. I think it was a Trudinov fight because one of those things I had on a Trudinov fight was that the fight with Laurent is still on, win or lose. And then I was like, but Leron will probably leave you guys. So then how would you be able to deliver that? And he was like, no, he's not going to leave. Of course he'll say that. Um, Wasn't the yeah, Tudinoff deal that it, this wouldn't affect your British title yeah, position? Yeah, exactly. That, yeah, which is why I was having that conversation with him. 
um, because I was like, well, it might not affect it, but it wasn't a fight that was sanctioned by the British Boxing Board. Um, it wasn't like uh, mandated by the Boxing Board. So Leron was well within his rights to just up and leave Frank Warren and then the fight's falling through. Um, yeah. And then the third time he postponed the fight was because, yeah, this is when he was like, oh, because he's got a baby due. And I was like, bro, like... <laughs> when did you <laughs> find out? What you said. Yeah, when did you find out? Like, this is your girlfriend. It's not some random chick you met and had a one-night stand with. Like, you knew you were having a baby. So then I was just like getting on to him. I was like, again, I like to think that it's not him. I like to think that it was someone else telling him what to say for the fight not to happen. Um, and then it just didn't happen. Um, but yeah, it was a whole saga. I remember we did the live thing on IFL. And he was talking about being world level. And I was like, based on what? Like, who have you beat as world level? And he couldn't give me a name. And I was like, based on what? So many people were texting me after. They were like, based on what? Based on what? But he's, he's had a curious career, right? Lerone's been a pro for nearly 10 years. Yeah. And you struggle to think of five wins he's had where you're like, oh, they were good wins. To be honest... It's you struggle to think of two wins he's had where you're like oh, those are great wins. I mean, so there was Lennox Clark. Um, you know, take away nothing from Lennox Clark, but he is what he is. Um, he's a game opponent. Leron beat, but stylistically, he's made for Leron. That being said, though, it was such a close fight that some people still think um, Lennox Clark won, and that's someone who's stylistically made for you. And then outside of that, I think he had a fight recently on Matchroom. Did he fight for the European? Like, yeah, something like that. But it's basically like all the fights he had leading up to the time. And this is me going back into that fighter mode that I had at the time with him being my up, like shooting holes and everything he's doing. And I shouldn't be doing that. Like he's a good boxer when he's all said and done, isn't it? And he's doing well. He doesn't fight often, which asks a lot of questions as to why. And, you know, what, yeah, why is that happening? I don't know. I, I really wish he can be more active and get back to it because... He's a good talent and it'll be a shame for him to waste all of that in his youth. He's too expensive. So you're Lerone Richards, you're European champion. There's a certain amount of money it's going to cost for you to fight. But you don't recoup mm -hmm. that. Do you see what mm -hmm. I mean? So if you, let's yeah. say, you, you, it's like, right, I can, I can fill one slot tonight. I can have Lerone Richards defend as European or I can have Ted Cheeseman in another war. You're always going to go with Ted Cheeseman just for the numbers. Yeah, yeah. And so he's yeah, in a horrible position now, career-wise, where unless you can position him in a really cost-effective way to be mandatory, so yeah. you, really you put Lerone in with Andrade, let him fight for the WBO. Like, just just have those mm. two guys bore the life out of the, each other in the public. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, it's just that their styles aren't great. Have those two go at I, it. I actually, don't, I actually don't think that fight will be a ball fest. I think Andrade will go for it. But I don't think Lerone will let him. Like we, that's where we've got to give Lerone yeah. credit for his skills. But yeah. it's not. Yeah, he's he, he's brilliant at only engaging when he wants to. Yeah, and I mean, you can imagine Canelo just turning that one off, going, "No, <laughs> I'm not watching this." <laughs> so tough. <laughs> but you know what's true? Like, just, just that that run through your career for me, and mm -hmm. you know, let me word this carefully. It breaks my heart to think that it stopped at Chudinov. Like, hand on heart. I'm like, shit, it stopped at Chudinov. Like, 
No, it didn't. I went to Mexico and banged out a guy in a minute after. This is when Mexicans were coming and bullying um, British fighters, remember? Oh! I went, <laughs> I flew to Mexico and got one back for the squad. Don't know the thing. Oh, I forgot <laughs> that. Yes. So, <laughs> so, so now you've got to fill in the gap between Chudinov and going to Mexico. <laughs> so, what happened after Chudinov was, obviously, I mentioned the whole brain scan thing and he, the subdural hematoma and yeah, da da. So the boxing board suspended me after that until I can prove that I'm fit enough to fight. So I went and got a brain scan in um, London. In, sort of, Trinidad fight was September 2020. Um, November 2020, I flew out because Boris was like, I think it was like a Sunday. Boris was like, we're going to go on lockdown on Thursday. I was like, okay, see ya. So I flew out on a Wednesday, went to Mexico for a couple of weeks, and then came to America. My missus is from here, obviously. So I was, um, I was here with her. And then I specifically came back to the UK in December to A, get a brain scan done to satisfy the British Boxing Board because I was like, it's been a few months now. It should be good. And also for Christmas. So I went to England, did that, came back to LA. And the Boxing Board were like, we need a hard copy of the scan from Russia. And I was like, yo, I had a... I had a bleed in my brain in Russia of all places. I come back and you're telling me you need a hard copy. You go translate and figure it out. Um, and obviously the onus is on me apparently. So we went back and forth a whole number of times. I submitted what I had. They said it didn't work. They needed something else. Eventually it turned out later on, this is after the Mexico fight, eventually it turned out that I submitted the right thing in the first place. They just... Um, they were using, I don't know, they were ancient in the way of working, basically. Let's put it that way. It was just a matter of downloading a computer software program that I was able to download for free on my MacBook at home, but an entire British Boxing Board uh, medical team couldn't figure it out. Oh, please don't say and Adobe Acrobat or Adobe Reader. <laughs> no, nah, it was like Osiris or something. But the thing is, when they said that it's not downloadable, it's a, they, were, they were saying it's a Russian formatted thing. So I just took the word on it. And it wasn't until like June 2021. I was like, do you know what? Let me just get down to this and see. And it took me no more than 15 minutes to figure out what program I needed to download, download and open the file. And I was like, wow, these people just wasted six months of my life because they couldn't be bothered to download the program. Anyway, um, but... The so I was going back and forth with them about all of that and all the frustration of it when February came around and then I re I figured out that I can fight in Mexico like most Americans do early on in their careers. So I was like, well, I'm suspended by the boxing board anyway. I'm gonna go ahead and do this. Um, plus I had itchy knuckles, like you know, all of that. So I went to Mexico, I had to fight, stop the guy in the first minute, and then the boxing board found out after. I had calls from Frank Warren, boxing board, yada, yada, what are you doing? Yada, yada, yada. You shouldn't have done that. I was like, well, I was suspended by the boxing board. My license expired with them. So, like, I don't see where the trouble is. And then, um, yeah, so we went back and forth. So that became a whole other case of the boxing board in itself. Um I went back and forth. I had a meeting with them. They were like, we don't think it's safe for you to keep boxing um, and all that. And it, But we're open to hearing any other evidence that you can present to prove that you can. So then I went to... My, one of my brother-in-laws is a brain surgeon, so I saw him. 
he gave me advice and his um, his analysis of the brain scans from Russia and what he thinks. And then I had a neuropsychological evaluation, which is an evaluation of your brain health and how it functions. So it covered um, just like motor skills, um, memory, cognition, IQ, intelligence, verbal reasoning, like all these things, dexterousness, the whole lot. And it, uh, it was like a, it was like a three hour test, maybe more. And I think I said, yeah, I went more than one day. Like, it's very long. Um, and and like, they put you through all these things. Most of it's physical. Some of it's on a computer. And then at the end of it, I got the report. And then the report said, Umar is a male of whatever, whatever, X kind of age from this, that background, yada, da da da. High to superior intelligence, high to superior IQ, yada, da da da, flying colors. So I'm like, great. There was no damage from Russia. Like, I'm good. So I took that report, went to the boxing board. I was like, I would like to have another hearing. So then I get the hearing scheduled for September. I go to have the hearing with the boxing board. And then they're like, no. Um, in a, the fact that you've had this injury before tells us that you're susceptible to having this injury again. And in our experience, when it happens, it often happens again. And when it happens the second time, it's usually worse. You're lucky to have got away with it the first time round without any lasting damage. It's a miracle. And actually, my brother-in-law um, said the same thing. He said to me, you're the luckiest person I know because I didn't get treatment for like six hours. And even then, I just laid in a bed reading. Um, and he said, normally people need treatment within half an hour, 15 minutes or so. At worst, an hour. Otherwise, they have like irreparable damage, or they end up dying. So um, there was like they were like, yeah, like, you're lucky to have got away with it unscathed in the first place. But chances are, if your weight drained in a difficult fight, or probably it, not probably, but it could happen again. So knowing that, we're not comfortable. We're not comfortable uh, reissuing your license. So then the, the the position I'm in at that point. This is September, like September 9th or something, 2021. I was, well, I can either go and get a license from one of these random bodies here in the United States and just carry on fighting here, or I can address what their concern actually is. And I know as much as they're making it sound like it's a concern for my health, I know that there's also a very big part of it that's concerned for getting sued if anything was to happen to me. But the fact that they're that bothered about getting sued for something happening to me makes it more real so I was just considering it and then I was like you know what I've got my health like that's the most important thing and like I would hate to be that guy who carries on fighting and then something happens and now he's a vegetable or maybe he's not a vegetable but even worse like I'm fully with it like mentally in terms of I'm aware of what's going on but I've got some type of impediment um, mental physical whatever because I decided to not listen so I was like it's not worth it I always wanted to be an actor when I left school. I wanted to go to college to do acting. My mom said no, got my family involved. Nigerian family, they're like, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, whatever. I was lost for a while, did accounting, then boxed. They hated that even more, but I was like, well, it's too late. I'm an adult now. So now I was like, well, what are the chances of me being in LA, Hollywood of all places, and then I'm getting told that boxing's too dangerous and acting's what I've always wanted to do anyway. So I just took the stars as being aligned and just was like, you know what, I'm not going to fight anymore. 
um, I'm going to focus on acting. And then um, October 2021, I decided I'm going to act as a, as a career instead of boxing. And that in itself has been a journey, like the whole transition of the situation, you know? So can I ask a question? And I think you're best place to answer this because this, this never gets discussed because what you've just said there is what I'd call a really rational assessment of risk versus reward, right? Mm-hmm. So... And you've had to do this. Like this isn't like you you weren't talking in theory. You had to make a real decision. A yeah. lot of times you hear boxers talk about you've got to carry me out. I'm, like like Wilder does, right? I, mm-hmm. Nothing's going to stop me doing this. I will I will box until they put me in the ground and all that sort of stuff. So <laughs> so having been through the process now, and you sort of hear that kind of bravado. How how do you look at it as someone who's been through that process when you hear all that kind of excessive bravado? I think there's an element of it that's showmanship. Um, and I also think that as an athlete, you have to believe that you're absolutely the best in the world. Otherwise, why are you doing it? And then with something like boxing, you have to believe in yourself so much that it's delusional. And I understand where they're coming from because, like I said, I was always prepared to go there, wherever there is. And I guess I found out where there is when I was in Russia. And I got there because I I intentionally went there. So I share that mindset of, you're going to have to carry me up because I'm going to fucking do whatever the fuck i got to do. Because from the third or fourth round, I had blurred vision. My depth perception was wonky, like the whole thing. And I was still out there just going at it. Um, I think for me, what's different is a, I have other options in life and I'm fortunate enough to be medically diagnosed with high to superior intelligence. Let's put that out there. Um, so, uh, and also I, I wasn't in a fight thinking about this stuff. I was, I, I didn't, I didn't have a fight coming up. I had meetings. I saw professionals. Um, and then I spoke with the board and when I had a hearing with the board, they had, I think there was two brain surgeons and one neurologist in a panel or something like that. And, um, yeah, so hearing all these professionals, having known what I've already experienced, it just felt like at some point you need to get over the delusion and listen to the people who are objective and professionals. But if I was going to the Russia fight with Chudinov and someone's telling me, oh, you shouldn't do this, it's dangerous, and yada, 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 then I would have been saying the same thing as well, though. I'd have been like, no, you're going to have to get me out of there in a stretcher. And, again, I was willing to do that. But when you're after the fact and you're listening to professionals and so many different independent people saying the same thing, I think you'd be silly to not take that into account because a wise person would, right? So to not do that would mean that you're being silly, which is, I'm saying that in terms of being the opposite of wise. It was just the wise thing to do. So I've had a couple of those conversations because what happened is after Edward Goodneck sued the board, and I think they had to pay like 400 grand. The board went Ooh. through on every application and said, okay, you're showing me the scan, but I need the medical history now. All the mm-hmm. way back. I need everything. Yeah. And so if people wonder why they don't see a lot of people on the scene anymore, a lot of guys just faded quietly when the board said, we can't approve you. And I was talking, yeah. I've, t- I've talked to a couple of guys about this and I'm, I, I, I hold a pretty consistent line now of, why take the risk? Like, like if you're yeah. on 10 million a fight and you wanted to set your family up, 
I'm like, I might warm to the idea, but I still wouldn't be in favour of it. But not for yeah. some of the sums that are being bandied about, mate. You, especially because you know, what people forget is boxing gives you a lot of skills that if you apply them are fantastic in the real world. Like that discipline, that deferred sacrifice, mm-hmm. you know, yep. you, you understand what you're capable of spiritually and emotionally. And also just because you're yep. in fights, you've got that confidence around people that makes them feel at ease. So there are loads of things you can do in life. I just think there comes a point where you don't want to risk your health. And it all sounds good to mm-hmm. say I'm a warrior till the end, but you can be a warrior in many different ways. And the, the reason this comes home, Umar, is when I was younger, in my rugby days, I played against a guy called Ryan Jones. And Ryan Jones went mm-hmm. on to Captain Wales. Yeah. To the Grand Slam. He played for the Lions. One of the greatest Welsh number eights of all time. In fact, I think I played against most of them. Michael Owen, Andy Powell, Ryan Jones, Gareth Delve, who who's Michael there. Owen played rugby. Uh, well, there's a, there was a Michael Owen. <laughs> in, in the same way, actually, paradoxically, there are three Jake Balls, right? There's Jake Ball, the boxer, Jake Ball, the rugby player, and Jake Ball, the cricketer. Damn. Yeah. So, so Ryan Jones has recently been diagnosed with early onset dementia from rugby. Mm. And there's him, there's a couple of other guys that I know from the circuit, like Michael Lipman, uh, loads of them, uh, Steve Thompson, who I once played against as well. And you're seeing it now in rugby. These guys are talking about, sometimes I forget who my kids are. Wow. And so it's, it's forced me to grow up and go, listen, you're, you're trying to be a warrior for people who don't know you and they're not going to have to wipe your backside when things go wrong. Be very careful about who you're committing to. And it, it's, yeah, the rugby thing brought it more home to me just because a lot of the guys who are going through it now, like Alex Popham, for example, we all came up in the system together, either playing together or playing against each other. And it's, it's a hard one. It's a real tough yeah. one to see. And like, I get paranoid where I'm like, am I one of these people who's on the, on the kind of on the edge? And if I were to spar mm-hmm. two or three more rounds, would that push me over the edge? Which is why I generally don't yeah. spar now. Like I, I get itchy knuckles. But then I'm like, mm-hmm. what am I doing it for? Really, what yeah, am I, I doing Yeah, I just do for? body sparring occasionally. Yeah, body I'm okay with, but I'm not head sparring, but I'm not competing for anything. Who am I mm. trying to be a hero for? And I, no I know some of my generation are still head sparring. I'm like, <laughs> good luck. Yeah, no, it's pointless. Even when I play, because I play football once a week now, and even then, like, um, I still try to avoid having to head of the ball. Um, and, like I, I would do it if I'm in a position and the ball's there and it's like, I'm like oh okay this is perfect so I'll go for it but otherwise I'm still trying to I'm not putting myself in positions to head of the ball intentionally because I'm just like well let's just stop doing that which segues perfectly so so now I just want to zero in on the here and now because I think we've we've kind of recapped between the previous show we did and this one so mm-hmm so first of all, we'll talk about the, the practicalities and sort of like the day-to-day. But emotionally, where are you now? As, a, as now an official ex-boxer, where are you emotionally in your yeah. Um I'm good. I, I mean, I miss boxing, don't get me wrong, and I enjoyed doing it. So even the other day, I was walking through this um, athletics field and this guy was coaching some people and I got a gloves on and did a, f- a few bits on a, punch, like, on a body suit. And it, it it comes so natural, which makes sense because I've done it for so much of my life. But um, actually, more than half of my life. 
But um, that aside, I mean, I'm happy, bro. I'm just grateful that I got to be a boxer in the first place. I got to experience all the things that I did, travel the world, meet all the people I met, all the great experiences I've had. And, um, you know, got to really do things that many people would dream to do. And then now I got out of it with my health intact. I live in a luxury apartment in downtown Los Angeles, right by Staples Center, which is almost equivalent of living in central London. Um, and you know, I've got my health intact. That's the biggest thing. I've got my health, health intact. I've got a beautiful, amazing wife. Um, I've got so much more life to live and experience. And going back to what you were saying earlier about some guys are like trying to prove their bravery by saying how much they're willing to commit to boxing. And I know this might sound new age, but I've thought about this and I actually think that the braver thing to do is to walk away from the only thing you know or the only thing that you've done for so many years and face the rest of life with openly with, okay, I'm prepared for whatever's going to come. Because for the most part, as human beings, we're, we're afraid of the unknown. You know, in remote parts of the world when they call, or developing parts of the world when they call people witches or wizards. I mean, even in England, at one point, they were burning women at stakes and drowning them because they didn't know how they were doing certain things. So the fear of the unknown is why people are afraid of the dark. You fear the unknown. You don't know what's in the dark. So to actually step away from this thing that's been your norm for so many years and face life, you know, hypothetically speaking, naked and just saying, whatever it is, I'm going to face it and I'm going to get over it. That's brave on a different level. Um, but to stick to oh, I'm going to box because all I know and I'm a warrior and all of that. Like, you almost sound like a Neanderthal. You know, it's like like a meathead or something. Because it's like, wait, is that the only thing you know? Is that all there is to life? You, you can love it, but that, how can you love, how can you love something like that more than you love yourself or more than you love your family? It's just a meathead thing that people say, in my opinion, to sound like they're tough. Depending on the circumstance, obviously. But sometimes, like, when, for example, in my case, I can't, I can't be here right now and try to convince you that it's okay for me to box without feeling like an idiot. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. It's so I find uh, the thing I find interesting is when you talk to guys who who step away, essentially their physical prime. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna dig in the archives for this one. So I saw Daryl Williams um, at the last mm -hmm. boxing show I went to. And normally you'd see Daryl and Daryl's in warrior mode because, you know, he's got a fight coming up or something. Mm -hmm. but being able to be around, like, calmer, more mature Daryl, who's been through a lot. Like, after that Zach Parker fight, I think it was very dark for him. But just being around Daryl as an older guy and just talking, you know, like, because he's definitely post-boxing. He won't go back. And just hearing okay. how he's sort of approaching life and so on and so forth. I was just happy because I'm not going to say he seemed at peace, but he seems to have found a peace and I'm really happy for him because he always had this reputation as being a hothead, but he's one of those people mm. who you could have at your barbecue and people would just be like, what a thoroughly nice guy he is. Just a really nice guy, funny guy as well. You know, entertaining, mm. you know, 
um, what was it? We were watching Zach Chelly versus Jermaine Brown and he was just there and he looked at me and he went, you think I could take both of them? And I was like, hey, <laughs> is this comeback talk? And he was just like, nah, 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 nah. Yeah, I'm we'll Don King it right now, but he's he's at peace now, and I'm I'm glad because sometimes when guys kind of get to the end, it's not great because it's rare yeah. you get to walk away on your own terms in boxing. Rare. That's that's so true, and um, yeah, that, that you summed it up really, I and mean, that's what that's part of the joy that I have now is that I feel like I walked away. Um, to some extent on my own terms, definitely from a health perspective. So so the question I've got for you now, now that you're LA, is it is it all white linen trousers and floral shirts and some sunglasses? Oh, you're forgetting the sandals, G. <laughs> <laughs> so have you flipped all the way over now from fighter to just creative now? Uh, nah, I mean, I'm... I'm Yo, I was a fighter before I even started boxing. A lot of people don't know. I, I did boxing for four years, not wanting to be a fighter, just wanting, just because I loved it. And I, I, I actually became a boxer because I got that good that it made no sense for me to not fight. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm a fighter at heart and I always will be and I'm going to continue to boxing train and whatnot. Um, but yeah, the creative aspect is um, definitely the full-time focus now. Um, and I still watch boxing, especially because I've got so many friends that are still active. Oh, we're going to come to support- don't worry. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll save that yeah. one for, for, for later. Because I think, because yeah. here's what I find interesting, because I once, I once acted. And... You're what, you're what sorry? I, yeah, I once acted. Is that, is that, right. is that the, yeah, it's acted. That's, that's the, the past tense of it. Cool. And I remember there was a, program they had with the with the old Vic and it was called Old Vic Young Voices and because I used to live around the corner from the old Vic I was just like let me let me just show up and see what this is all about and so what it was was community theater and and so what they do is they 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 run auditions so I think like 120 people audition for 30 places essentially ain't much changed yeah it's, it's brutal but I got through. Brutal, bro. I got through. Oh but, wow! But the experience I took from that was: there's a process in acting where they try and get you to peel the layers back. Oh, you have to. And it's a dangerous thing. So the problem with that is you have. I think we started at half six and finished at about ten. So you got three and a half hours of. I'll call them games, but it's essentially scenarios you play through and it's about being vulnerable. You've got to tell someone a secret you've never told anyone, all this sort of stuff, right? And they do mm-hmm. this for three and a half hours. And what happens afterwards is you're all so kind, it's been such an intense experience. Everyone goes, right, let's go for a drink. But because you've kind of been in each other's business, you almost feel like there's a bond. And mm-hmm. like there's a, there was a lot of stuff that happened in, in dark corners and stuff like that that evening. I can tell you that for absolute certain. Yeah, and, there will be if people yeah, feel bonded. And and during rehearsals and so forth, like you saw a lot of relationships form. And before, I'd never really understood why Hollywood had this thing of, you know, people dating and getting into relationships until I went through that process and I thought, Jesus, like you really have to have it in you to open up and you can't be guarded yeah. because everyone can read that in you. So exactly, how you, you can't. That process. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I approached it with caution. Um, it's actually interesting that it's quite insightful of you to bring that up. So the first thing is acting is not performing. And I used to think that. And so many people think that. So many people think it's you get a script, you read a script, and then you turn up and wait for your cue. You say your line, the other person says the line and whatnot. But if acting is portraying an event that's happening in this scenario, wherever the scenario may be, then it needs to reflect what happens in real life in the real world. So in the real world, I mean, right now we're on a call, but if we were in person and I was speaking, you would be actively listening to me. The things that I'm saying would invoke certain behavior from you and actions and whatnot. And you would have an opinion in those um, things that I'm saying or a reaction depending on your point of view of me and what those things mean to you, right? And then vice versa. And typically you'd have behavior that precedes your words. It's very unlike, if someone, if you speak to someone and they just say words without any behavior back of it, you'd be like, are you okay, bro? Like, why are you so robotic or whatever? So to do that in acting and make it real, you really have to find ways to form emotional connections with the lines that you're reading and then have a point of view on the other person so that when they're saying these words to you, you're not just waiting for a, for your cue, you're actively listening to them and they're affecting you with these things they're saying because A, you've made emotional connections with them through different techniques and B, you have a point of view of the person. So like if you think I'm silly and I say, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a new car, you might roll your eyes and that, whatever kind of thing. But if you, if you respect me and I say I'm going to buy a new car, you might say, oh, wow, what car are you going to get? But even if you don't say the words, but your body language would portray that, you know? So it's all of these things, but all of that is a long way to say that you have to open your emotional channels and be connected because what you're really doing is you're feeling things and expressing them with the words in the scripts. But the real acting is happening with everything outside of the lines that you're saying. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it, it's, it taps into what I experienced because when people say to me, what did, you, what did you learn from being part of the Young Vic old voices? And I said, these are the things I learned. Number one, keeping conversation open and looking out for people who keep conversations closed, right? So for example, mm. if, if I'm messaging someone and I say something and they don't accept it, they call it accepting the argument, don't they? Right. So if I say, Uma, that's a lovely shirt you've got on. Closing the argument is going, thanks, right? Accepting yeah. <laughs> the argument is, do you know what? Let me tell you the story behind how I got this shirt. That's called accepting the yeah. argument and going on. And then it's on me to then accept your argument and go, oh, so you bought that at Lemert Park, uh, Le Le Park Market. Okay, cool. I've been there before. Look at you. Hey. Man like Terry out here knowing these Los Angeles spots and now, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but, but you see what I mean? So when you have that, and normally you'll find this, when you get along with people, that happens naturally. Yeah. And the people you don't trust are the ones who close things off and they'll give you one word yeah. answers in exchanges and so on and so forth. And so that taught me very quickly to work out when I'm wasting my time and stop right. knocking on doors that are closed. Um, 
And I, I learned all of that because like, they'd run improv games. I was actually quite good at improv for some of Oh, that's reason. dope. Im- improv's what's up. You see, so again, with improv, the only way to improv effectively is to listen and really pay attention to the other person. Otherwise, you miss your mark, you miss the context, you miss all of that. You really have to pay attention. How that correlates for me with um, boxing is because when you're fighting, your attention has to completely be on the person that you're fighting and nobody else. And you have to analyze everything they do and take nothing they do for granted. Um, acting is the same way. And you have to do that take after take after take. Same way in boxing, you've got to do it round after round after round. There are many parallels to it when you find them. Oh, that if you just look. And then how have you coped with, because this is the other part, right? Because you get to a certain level in boxing and you got to a level that I'd class as British level plus is where I'd kind of peg it. Yeah. And then you go into acting, you're like, well, I've literally got to start at zero. All over again. Yeah. Yeah. So how's that process been? That process is, because I've done it before, I know that I can do it again. And also, again, because of the disciplines you learn in boxing, you learn that you know what you want, you commit yourself to it, and you get better every day. Keep doing the things you got to do, and eventually you'll get there. But also, you can't ignore the business aspect of things, you know. So um, there are many things that I've learned from boxing that I think help put me in a better position than so many people that are acting that haven't had those kind of experiences. I've managed myself in boxing. I've negotiated fights. You know, I've um, dealt with all types of people, managers, matchmakers, promoters. I've literally reached out to promoters and made things happen for myself. The whole lot, I've dealt with, you know, sponsorship agreements and whatnot. Um, Plus, you add my accounting background to that. So now I'm acting. I understand that yeah, I've got to work and be the best actor I can be, but also my package has got to be great. That's why I've got my great umarsadiq.com website. And I just took some headshots recently that I'm going to add to it. And, you know, I audition well and I'm intentional about the type of agents I sign with and what kind of projects I want to do and the whole lot because I understand that, you know, all these things come hand in hand. Mind you... Um, this wasn't like this whole transition wasn't straightforward because obviously like your professional fighter like you said you know I was boxing on TV for for WBA gold title and the whole lot and then now I'm in a different new country and I'm like having to accept that I can't box like, I felt hella lost like there was lockdown no one knew when these whole lockdown things were going to stop how many times they're going to ask us that we have to go and get a job that we can't live life or whatever um, just the whole thing was just a whole mess and then now I'm going through this thing where I'm like because it's your identity in it when you're a boxer that is your identity that's what people know you as that's how people communicate with you interact with you the conversations you have are usually based around that or from that you know lens so to speak so remember when I was saying earlier about um, if you're speaking to someone your point of view and the person um, colours the way that what they say to you affects you and when you're a boxer, that lens colors the way that what you say affects people and also colors how they are towards you. So then now I'm like, well, I don't know. And then people will be like, oh, what do you do? And I'm thinking, I don't know. And a couple of days after the meeting with the boxing board, I went into a boxing gym and for the first time ever in my life, I'm looking around at all these young kids, it was a sparring day, all these young kids who are in their 
come into Spa full of so much life and hope and vigor and dreams and I could see the proof that they've been working hard because they're fit and they've got the cultures of them and you know their family or whoever it is and all of that and they're getting in and they're getting it on and exchanging blows and it's a beautiful art and all all of this because they hope to someday be this big name that makes a lot of money and I know that not all of them are going to make it as a matter of fact most of them are not going to make it but it was so matter of fact the way I was looking around the gym I'd never looked in the gym and felt that way before or ever even had that perspective before uh, it was the first time I actually felt like a civilian because I was analyzing all of this as well all these kids and I wasn't one of these kids um, that's when I realized that yo okay this whole thing is maybe not going to be as easy as I thought because I didn't even consider this aspect of things. So then, yeah, then I went on from there to, like I said, people ask, what do you do? And I'm like, deep down, I'm like I don't actually know. But I don't want to announce on the retirement because there are already so many changes going on. I don't want to like compound it by making it public, you know. So I would say whatever I'll say to people. Um, I don't know, some people say I'm an actor or model. So I was like, I'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, I box or whatever. When are you fighting next? I don't know. And I just chose not to say anything, but it was a transition that took a while. And it, I would say from an emotional and spiritual standpoint, it's a lot harder than um, a lot of people would imagine, which is also part of why I was saying, I think that is the braver thing to do. If you really want to show how hard you are, how brave you are, like, that's the braver thing to do. It's easier to just carry on doing what you already know and just hope that you don't get knocked out, you know? You know what it is for me? It's the, I call it the idea of the inner circle, right? And I see this a lot with guys who have been there and left. Um, you can pick your names, your Danny Connors, um, guys I know like Danny Davis, Martin Welsh. When you're, when you're involved in boxing, you're in that inner circle. That means you get to see the, the little sparring, little tear-ups and stuff that never gets out into the public. You hear all the gossip, you hear what this guy's earning and you become, you, you're part of this world. And then you take a step out and you're no longer part of it. Like it doesn't come to you. It's not, the thing just carries on without you. Yeah. And, and I've seen some people get really bitter. So you see a lot of ex-boxers who are just bitter. A lot of ex-trainers who are bitter because they can't get back in. And all they want is to be part of that circle again. And that's why you see a lot of these guys, they don't give up. Like their shoulders are finished, their elbows are finished, their wrists are finished as trainers, as but they just love that. You, you put your little tracksuit on, your little lanyard and run around <laughs> and talk about you know the old days with Mickey May and all that. So they love all of that. Whereas yeah. I think you and I have this in common in that after a certain point, I can take it or leave it. Like if someone said to me, you'll never train another fighter again, I was like, I'll find another challenge. It's fine. Done it before, do it again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to be like that. You can't have attachment. And this is a spiritual lesson. You, you just can't have attachment in life to anything. Um, and it sounds cold sometimes, but you really just can't. Um, like I said, it's a spiritual thing. You know, um, which chakra is it? I'm trying to remember which. I can't remember which chakra it is, but it's one of the chakras where like to... Um, I think it's the I think it's the heart chakra. So there's a green one really by the heart uh, in the chest, and to activate it, you have to let go of attachment. I believe it's that one. Um, 
but yeah, so it, it rings true to that. You can't be attached to things. It, 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 it literally blocks the flow of life to go through you. Yeah, you're a prisoner. Until you can let go of things, man, you're always going to be a prisoner. Mm. Uh, I remember when I was a kid and we used to do things that are, that are classified until we get a statute of limitations over here. And what I learned very early is you can't have anything. You can't, you can't have greed. You can't have lust. You can't mm-hmm. have desperation because that's what you got exploited for. Look, I had a friend and he got robbed because these guys got to one of the girls that he like obsessed about. And they said, listen, we will give you 20% of what we get if you can bring him round the back here. Oh, yeah, all that happens all the time. Yes. But, like, you could never do that with me because I'm just like, I can take it or leave it. Like, like we'll do it when yeah. I'm going to do it or it doesn't happen. If someone says, no, 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 oh, we, yeah. have to go to, we have to go to this precise location here. I'm like, no, 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 let's go do it over there. But also the street smart is like, hold up a minute. My alarm bells will start ringing in hella wild. Why this specific location? <laughs> but, but you see, but when you're blinded by lust and you're like, oh, I'm about to get what I've always wanted. You act yeah, outside. You, don't even like, think of, yeah. you doubt yeah. all your logic. All the logic goes out the window. And then before you know it, I mean, you're, you're found in the middle of nowhere with no clothes on and your trainers. And you, you, you can't have attachments to things that don't, how can I put it, that don't fulfill your purpose. So for me, my only attachment is my family my really tight circle? Mm. Because... And this, yeah, it's funny that you say that. That's actually why I said it sounds callous. Because when I was saying not having attachment, I literally meant attachment to everything. But of course, that you all have that within reason. So that you said that, like, close family and friends, yeah. 100%. That's, that's the life I live. Like, I don't hold anything sacred. Like, I see how people prostrate themselves and they see Frank Warren. I'm like, yes, yeah, Frank Warren. What about it? And I'll just be like, hey, Frank, mm-hmm. come, I've done this before. Hey, Frank, come over here. Yeah, what did he do? Came over. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, and I'm like, Frank, listen, you don't know it yet, but there's going to be a kid coming through and I'll tell him the name of it. I promise to God, write that down in your, in your little notebook and then thank me later. Yeah, I need, I need free tickets for life if you sign him. And we'll just have a chat. And Frank's probably just gone... Uh, don't know that guy. Guy's probably a bell end, but God, he's got some balls, hasn't he? Whereas yeah, everyone else around him falls yeah. over him. Oh my God, Frank. Oh my God, that camel suit is so amazing, Frank. Oh, 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 oh. Did you have sweet corn this morning, Frank? Uh-huh. <laughs> what? That's what happens because they've got their tongue so far up there. <laughs> Do you know, I was wondering where you're going with it. <laughs> All right, cool. but, but what's it like in LA? Because, because like I'll, I'll see, I'll see the Instagram stuff, and you seem like you're settled now. Like there's a routine, and you've got like people you're around, and it seems that mm-hmm. like you're you're living in LA life. You're not a Londoner in LA anymore. You're living in LA life. So how is it living in LA? Yeah, man, I, I live here now, bro. Like you said, it's great. I don't have to worry about the weather. I think it's rained like four times this year so far, and we're in July. Um, and most of that was like in a you know late winter, early spring. 
But yeah, it's lit. The weather's lit. There's um, it's a big city, but they've got highways everywhere, so carriageways, um, and that you got to drive everywhere. Really, they've got public transport, which is not as great as London. But because you got to drive everywhere, parking is cheap. It's like again, after that, I live downtown, and the parking here is like I don't know, like a dollar twenty an hour, maybe a dollar fifty at most. Sometimes a dollar an hour. Um, that you'd be lucky to find parking for that in, for 10 minutes in most parts of like central London. Um, and so there's that, there's so many people that live in LA are not from LA because so many people look at LA as you go as a place you go to, to make dreams come true. So you have a lot of hustlers here, which is good because you're around so many people who dream and then they inspire you and so much is happening and so much is possible. Um, that being said, though, you also got to be cautious because there's also going to be a lot of people who, you know, the whole fake it till you make it mentality. So you got to be, you got to get good at weeding out who's really about what they're selling and who's not. Um, and also who is, who has a relationship with you because they are trying to get something or if it's genuine. And one of the things that I learned early here as well that threw me off was, you see, in England, yeah, like, if you and I went somewhere, Terry, and I had to introduce you, I'd probably be like, yo, this is my boy, Terry. Like, I've known him for X amount of years. Like, we're involved in boxing, right? The whatever, if I, if I even mentioned that. But here, it'll be, yo, this is my boy, Terry. He does a boxing podcast and he works in technology. So they introduce people based on what the person does, which feels like a currency almost. That's um, so, so true. that's something. Like when yeah. you meet Americans here, it's like, hey, mm. hey, I'm Susan. What's your name? I'm Terry. Hey, Terry, what do you do? And you know, like, like yeah. you know what it's like when you're British. You're like, hey, it's a bit forward. What do you mean, what do I do? Yeah, you're like, you're like, why the fuck is your business? <laughs> like, like, you know, can uh, we have a beer? Let's have a drink first. Yeah. Or something. Come on. But they, they're, but it's such a, they're straight. It's such a it. common thing here, bro. Yeah, it's such a common thing, and like, literally, people introduce you based on what you do. So that's one of the things I have to wrap my head around because at first I was like, these, everyone here is a user. But then I quickly realized that that's just what they do. Um, and then what else? Food is salty or sugary. They don't have the same laws as they do in the UK in terms of like protecting foods. Um, I'll give you an example. I go into Whole Foods and they've got organic seedless watermelons. Bitch spun my head and I'm sure spins everyone's head probably just listening to this. How is it seedless and organic? But somehow the laws allow that to happen. So you gotta go out your way more to find um more holistic foods and organic and natural foods. Because even by definition, they like they change the rules and the definition. Um what else? This is, uh, the streets are bigger, they 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 call it blocks instead of streets. I have to check what words I'm using all the time. Like, if I say I'm going up the lift, they'll be like, what? Lift? Like an Uber? I'm like, no, like elevator. Um, you know, just stuff like that. I've got to make sure I say pants instead of trousers. I, I can't say water around a lot of Americans because they love it. You know, if you say water, they'll be like, say that again? Say that again? <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> so it's, it's stuff like that. Um, but it's cool. It's fun. And LA is a dope-ass place, man. Like, within an hour drive, so, like, if you go in the center of a triangle, yeah, within an hour of that center of a dry triangle, you've got mountains, you've got snow, you've got a beach, you've got sea, like, all within an hour of a triangle. And that's dope. 
or a circle, so to speak. Um, and there's always something going on. Like there's just something for everyone here, man. But can you walk though? That's my question. Can you actually not walk? far? No, because it's so big. No, no, For no, example, no, 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 no. Can you walk? Oh, like walk around? No, yeah, 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 no, 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 no. Can you walk? Can you get your walk on? <laughs> Look, if, obviously, if you go to the hood, then it's different. <laughs> isn't it? I don't go to the hood. So I'm you can't grip walk yet. No, no, no. Don't be going like that. I, don't, I mean, I went to a party one time in the hood. Actually, um, so this guy that lived in the hood growing up, he ended up going to this college, university and joined this fraternity or whatever and um, he he's doing really well now so he had a birthday party and he chose to have it at his mum's house and then I got invited through someone else who knows him so we went but it's like he was quite popular in the neighbourhood so there was a whole bunch of people there and it was fun it was lit it was in the back garden at night so you go through around the back whatever and then at one point they put this music on that I don't think I've ever heard and then him and a few of his friends they get in the middle and they start doing some I don't know what it was it looked like Crip Walking mixed with Bashment dancing or something what, Crumb and, dancing you just call it crumping probably I don't think it was crumping but it was something it was something from the fraternity though and they were getting so amped about it and I was thinking yo this shit looks dead though <laughs> but um, yeah the, the culture is just different over here man <laughs> Oh yeah, haircuts. You'd be lucky to get a haircut for less than thirty-five dollars. Most haircuts are like fifty dollars up, which blows my mind. I hope there are no barbers in the UK listening to this. If this word gets out, it might get peaked for London still. I'm telling you, <laughs> now, man, fifty dollars a cut. I'm just growing it out, man. <laughs> I'm like, you're yeah, gonna earn your money like, today. Trust. I straight up only cut my hair when I've got something to do, which is actually coincidentally what I used to do with boxing too. Like even when I was fighting. I'd only get a haircut when I've got like a shoot or I've got to be somewhere for press or whatever. But um, still, $50 a haircut is a lot. And then you expect us a tip. Oh yeah, you expect us a tip on everything. Like absolutely, you can order food from a fast food joint and or food truck even. You order food from a food truck and they expect you to put a tip in a jar. Ooh, that's not very British. I know. Like, 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 no. Is it optional even when you order no, it's optional, but it's expected. Right? It's yeah, that's what I mean. I'm like, oh. If you don't, yeah. You're saying exactly. it's even optional, you're... but you're looking at me like it's not. Exactly. Why is that like, gun even... pointed at me? <laughs> They're like, um, it's well, the bullet, the trigger might not be pulled. It's optional. Um, was it? Do you guys pay? Because I didn't used to order Uber Eats much in London, but do you guys pay tips on Uber Eats? No, generally you just pay a delivery charge. Yeah, so here you pay the delivery charge and you expect it to tip. The nah, same not, when you go... for the service I get. I've seen guys get lost, man. They, <laughs> have the map. they had to get rid of the map because guys were getting lost. <laughs> yeah, that's jokes. Now, sometimes I had to... Um, I've had to a few times uh, cancel people's tips because I straight up put that like, ring the bell and they would just put it on the floor outside the door. Sometimes I won't even knock the door. I'll be like, where's my food at? And then I'll go check it and it's outside. Now it's half cold and shit. Yeah. And I'm taking my tip back. Right. Yeah. I'm just conscious that the listeners are going to be like, yeah, you're a boxing podcast. So I've got to ask you the obvious question. Yeah. How close are you to boxing now? Um, I go in and out of Brickhouse Boxing Gym, which is, which is where Julian Charles trains people, Gilberto Ramirez, a bunch of other people. That's where I was sparring Benavides as well. 
Um, there's a few um, new fighters coming out there. Kareem Hackett, um, light heavyweight. Um, John Scrappy Ramirez. He's on one of them lighter weights. I think about 118 pounds. Um, oh, yeah. So boxing here, everyone talks about weight in pounds. Um, and, yeah, with the sparring, like I said earlier, they usually have sparring days and anyone can pull up and it's competitive. And people talk about sparring here. You see like how in the UK it's all secretive, everyone is like behind closed doors and whatnot. Here is like we sparring these days and everybody can pull up and unless you're having some major fight or something like your sparring is probably gonna be out in the open. Like only a select um number of fighters at a certain level have closed door sparring, as far as I've experienced anyway. Because um, even when I was sparring Bivol, the gym I was sparring him in, there was a bunch of people in the gym training and obviously all boxing-related people, but still. And it didn't feel like if anyone just walked in, they were going to get stopped because there were so many people that no one would probably even know who the person was. Um, so that's different here. And then um, I go to this other gym. Where, so I go Manuel Robles' gym on occasion because Ramla trains with him now. So Ramla Ali is based here a lot now. And um, I'm quite close with her and her husband. And um, they also train at a gym right next to my house for the strength conditioning. So they come over often. So I'm connected with them also. Well, that's and good. Then, I, um, I like that. You know, I like it when when the boxing network can kind of connect. And even if, because I imagine like when she was coming through, that would have been the tail end of your amateur career as well. Yeah, so we, I actually know her from the amateurs because they used to come to Repton to spar her and her team. And I remember I always used to like the way she boxed. Because um, at the time, I used to actually say, um, she boxed like what I felt was the female version of me um, when I was boxing with a solid stance and that amateurs, like, you know, like the textbook boxing type of thing. Yeah. So I always liked that. And we connected over that and we were like, we'll vibe and whatnot. And then when she was coming here last year, um, because she was going to fight in Vegas. I was like, to her, oh, um, what are you doing? Like, how are you getting back from the airport? And she was like, oh, we haven't planned that yet. I was like, okay, cool, I'll pick you up. And then, yeah, so we've just been cool since. Like, well, we've been cool before that, yeah. but like, I meant cool in terms of like, staying connected here in LA. That's good, because I look at Ramlin, I'm a fan, I'm a fan of what she's building, but now I'm like, you've done the the refugee story thing into boxing. Now mm-hmm. we need to see you fight because you fought in the UK as an amateur. We mm-hmm. know who you should be fighting now so we can gauge where you're at. Mm-hmm. And so as I'm, now I'm just speaking as a fan, I'd quite like to see Ramler jump in with someone like an Ellie Scottney. Um, there's the Australian girl, Sky Nicholson. That I think would be good fights because... Are they all the same weight? Uh, what's Ramler now? Feather or Super Bantam? I should know this, but I don't. They're all roughly, but they're all ballpark, right? Because they all boxed around mm. 54, 57 in the amateurs. So they're all kind of ballparky. They can fight each mm. other. I mean, they, right. there's there's definitely the capacity for them to fight each other. Yeah. Well, the thing is with Ramner, is that you've got to remember, she had three fights in the US, partially because she wanted to, and also partially because, I mean, I don't know, situation of the match room, whatever. But she had them fights here. And then she just had her first fight back in London and she wants to have more fights in London. And she still wants to fight in the US, but she also wants to have more fights in London because she wants to fight in front of her home fans, you know? But now that she's had that, I think, especially because she sold so many tickets, 
there's a good chance that Eddie's going to want her back because if we talk about finances, she makes nothing from making a fight in the US, but he makes all his money when she sells 500 plus. Because she, she, what she said, I, I can't speak in it, but she said this, she sold 400 tickets because the day of her fight was the same day as Eid. So that's like having a fight on Christmas Day as a Christian. So what she's saying is, if it wasn't Eid, she probably would have done over a thousand tickets. And it doesn't sound far-fetched because it was Eid. So I'm interested to see if that happens. And if that's the case, then you know Eddie's going to definitely put her back on in the UK again. But what card so, was that on, though? That was a no Derek Chisora card. Okay, so you're going to sell those tickets. Like, we're, we're all doing 500 tickets. Right? Mean, all, yeah. Like, I'm doing... Listen, I'm a podcaster. Right, hold, I'll hold, do 500 hold, hold, tickets. I, okay, all right, let me, let me, let me make this fair though. <laughs> she sold them in 72 hours. Okay, that, that's, they, they, those are good numbers, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, no, I, that's her. I could probably do yeah, it in a because, week. Yeah, because if you're finding a Derek Chisora card or whatever, even on the AJ card, yeah, you can do 500 tickets, but you're probably going to get a lot of last-minute buys. People that couldn't get it from the website because it was sold out, then they come to you, you know, all of that. That's what would likely happen. But people that you don't know would typically go to the website first. But if you're selling it in 72 hours, like seven weeks before the fight, those people will come in to watch you. I'll clear that, man. No, I've got a loyal fan base, man. We will clear that. <laughs> but no, I, I wish but, Ramla all the best because obviously she's ex-Lodge, so I'll always back her. I just, mm. but I say the same to all the women in that division. I'm like, you guys need to fight each other because you don't need to be like the men. And this isn't meant to be disrespectful to women boxers they don't sustain the same level of punishment. They yeah, can, I hear you. Yeah, there's not the same jeopardy in getting in with someone who's had more fights. Yeah, because they're not banging the thing. Yeah, so yeah. I'd, like, I'd like to see her step up. Um, but you're not just going to mention you sparred Bivol and then just slide out, man. You've got to let us know what that was like because you sparred Bivol not for the Canelo fight, but you were sparring him before the Canelo fight, right? No, I, I sparred him, for, yeah, before, yeah, yeah. I fought him for the Craig Richards fight, which is obviously why they had me in. Um, and I told Craig about it, so it wasn't like I was snaking him. I, I told him, I was like, yo, I'm sparring Bivol. They're paying me, so, um, you know, that's what I did. And he was like, yeah, cool, no hard feelings, whatever. Um, and then that was that. So, yeah, so I fought him. He, he He's great. The thing is, in hindsight, I should have known that he would beat Canelo. And I'm saying in hindsight because I'm not trying to be one of them people that's like, oh, I knew it because I did it. Um, because when I sparred him, I did very, very good. But I did very, very good doing things that Canelo doesn't do. And I couldn't see how else to be competitive against him without being a boxer, um, using my physical advantages. Um Canelo is obviously a lot shorter than me and, and sits on his punches and whatnot. And whereas Bivol's timing and use of range is just like, it's amazing. Um, which can be used against him. And I'm not going to start saying anything. So I but it can be used against him. No, no, no. I'll yeah. tell you what I found really yeah. interesting. Go on. Bivol does nothing going backwards. Watch the Canelo <laughs> fight again. Everything's yeah. all off the front foot. Yep. And I remember yeah, he, saying. He doesn't, I was like, if Canelo just mauled this guy, just kept pushing him back and just throwing shots, I don't know. Now, maybe if he'd been under that kind of pressure, he could have dug it out. 
but he wasn't doing anything going backwards in that fight. Now, so what he does, he does a number of intelligent things. He does things like, if you hit him, he makes sure he gets the last word immediately. Um, so he doesn't take chances, but if he conceded a clean shot, he will take chances to um, not just balance things, but get ahead. And then if you stand within range, he will let his hands go and he, he will unload on you. Um, so there's that. And then, um, but he, he also doesn't like it. He doesn't, not, I shouldn't say he doesn't like it. He doesn't engage much on the inside. So if you get on the inside of him, he typically wants to push you off, find some space, find some distance. He might on occasion let off a shot or two, but not too many. Um, and again, like I was saying much earlier in our conversation, by the way, I'm putting some shopping away as we're speaking, in case you can hear noise. But um, like I was saying earlier on in the conversation, if you're, you have to be on point coming into attacking, because if you're not, he'll make you pay. I mean, the guy made Canelo pay, so do like who's anyone else, you know? Because for me, he's definitely a work rate guy, right? Like, you look at him and you go, if you can't match him... No. Oh. No. Okay. No. That's a, that's, a, that's a big misconception. So this is, these are one of the brilliant things about Julian. Because um, one of the things that Julian um, I didn't, um, pointed out to me, and I was like, damn, you're right, was Kenneth, um, Bivol looks busy, but he has breaks. He has break upon break upon break upon break. Because um, what he does is... Hold on, because I need to get away from this place. Um, what, what he what he does is um, he would like let his shots off, and then he will be engaged because he's got those strong fit legs where he just pulls, where he just um, he's like he's always bouncing and ready to move. So he looks like he's ready to do something, even when he's not. He will let his shots off, and then he's there. And really, because he comes at you when you hit him. He's expecting that you're probably going to come at him when he hits you. So now he's in a position ready to counter. And then if you come, he might counter and it looks like he's so fit, he's still going. But if you don't, he just looks like he's poised, ready to do something. So it makes him look fit. But he really takes his time and he would usually not throw more than three punches at the same time unless you're trapped in a rope and then he lets off a combination. And even then, he goes up to have a break after. Because someone asked me who was between him and Baturbiev. I just said Baturbiev smokes him. Like, <laughs> yeah, smokes smoked him. him. I don't... Do you know... So this is the thing. It's hard to write Bivouac because of his use of range. This, this is the thing. Because if... Baturbiev smokes him if he hits him. I think Baturbiev smokes anyone if he hits them. But with Bivol, it'll be a case of whether or not Batoviev gets to hit him clean in the first place because he's so quick in and out. I used to believe that till I saw the Marcus Brown fight and I thought Marcus Brown was a hard guy to hit. Mm. Marcus Brown's got that kind of Andrade kind of thing to him where it's long, slashing shots and then he gets out. And Batoviev was just right. like, oh, okay, if that's what you want to do, remember this is a 12-round fight, but... In the meantime, I'm still going to be chopping you down. You're going to get some dead arms, your ribs, everything. You're going to get chopped down until you could see mm. Marcus Brown just go, oh my God, someone just get me out of here. Yeah, Batavia is a scary guy, man. 
Yeah, you know, our, our, our good friend was out in Montreal sparring him, and oh yeah, yeah, you know I mean, I, I, I remember sending Dan a message. It's like, look, yeah, we need Baturbia, so hopefully the Dan Aziz curse doesn't come true this time. Because <laughs> normally when Dan spars people, that's the end of their career. Like Darren Till was never the same after that. George Groves was never the same. You know, even he didn't go out and spar Kovalev, and Kovalev looked terrible on Triller. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think he spar I spar George Groves the same time he sparred him as well. Um, the no, Dan sparred a lot of people, and they still carried on. You remember Dan's a gym rat; he's always active. Because uh, did he sp- he didn't spar Ramirez when he was in LA? Did he? Well, Gilberto Ramirez. Yeah. No, he did. I cornered him and everything for that. Oh, how was that? Oh, you, yeah, twice. Hmm? Yeah, no, they they they, they sparred twice. Um, it was good. You could see, um, you could see the, the difference in like training and learning some of the nuances in America versus in the UK. But Dan did good. Um, they sparred on a Wednesday, and then Dan went and sparred again on a Thursday. A uh, Virgil, um, what's his name? Uh, Buddy McGurk's gym on a Thursday. I don't know why he did that because he knew he was going to have to um, spar Ramirez again that's on where Friday. Kovler was then because I think Kovler's been trained by Buddy McGurk. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly it. Um, no, but that, that's also who Dan came to train with, really. Um, so he, then he came back on a Friday after having sparred two days in a row, and he just he was tired. Like, he wasn't like getting beat up or anything, but he was just tired. Like. Um, the, the Wednesday spa was there. Okay, yeah, that's understandable. But hmm. but I do like this though. There's this trend now. There's a bit more courage. So you got Hamza Shiraz, you got Josh Watsi out there. We had you mm-hmm. out there, and now Dan's mm-hmm. you know crossed the ocean. Do you know what I mean? And I think this is yeah. good for people's education, and it brings us back to the point where you were talking about kind of that education. What is it you see in American gyms that you've not seen in British gyms? Uh, I'm going to leave the floor to you for a bit to really break this one down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like I said, the whole open sparring thing, it's, it's high-pressure states, you know, because um, obviously every gym is different, but the whole notion of anyone can just pull up and be like, yo, I want to spar. Um, and you know that all these people are watching and people do talk. There is some element of pressure every time you're sparring. And if you want to do technical sparring, then do technical sparring behind closed doors. But there's all this, and you might not know who you're sparring. This person might pull up. You don't know what intentions they have, yada, 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 all of that. People talk during sparring in America. In England, it's like, it's frowned upon. But in America, they'd be talking that shit, man. Yo, you got to bust his ass, man. Oh, you, you can't just let him walk up on you like that. You know, oh, oh, oh shit. Oh, shit. You got to you gotta take that stick away. Yeah, this is all the stuff that you hear when you're sparring here. Um, and then again, like I said, the attention to nuances and breaking down what the things they're saying actually mean impresses me because it, it like name a few instructions that are typical British instructions. Be first. Um, one, two. On your jab, um, son. Yeah. On your jab. Yeah. Oh yeah. But this is the Double thing. Double up the jab. Yeah. No offense to anyone. But I actually didn't know how to throw a very good jab until I came to America. And I'd been boxing for, what, 15 years at that point. That, I, that's, I say no offense, because I've had a lot of coaches in my years. 
but I didn't learn how to throw a very good job until I came to America. And that's because everything that we learn in the UK in terms of punching um, dominantly comes from the upper body. And although we're taught to rotate our feet when we throw certain shots, there's never that connection between the feet and the, and the arms. There's always, when you throw this shot, you only move your hips, but there isn't too much of an emphasis on it. You've got to turn your foot um, and then throw your arm this way. Um, and even just the footwork, just so many times you see British fighters like get into an exchange and there's that little skip that happens before they go back into the stance. And during that skip, the feet come together, then they spread again. And when you're stepping across and whatnot, you see so many fighters crossing their legs over, you know, the feet are coming together, all of that stuff. And then you come to America and you start to learn to, you maintain a certain distance between your feet all the time. And this is how you get the most power out of this shot. And this is how you snap this shot. So even Buddy McGurk, I trained with Buddy McGurk at one point. And he had me throwing the same jab over and over again, the same hook over and over again because it wasn't popping. Um, Julian was the one that eventually showed me the best way to do it. And I was throwing right hands that were cracking, absolutely cracking. And I was using probably about 70% of the effort that I normally would use. And it was sharper, less telegraph, just everything. Just um, There's so many nuances. Even understanding why are you even jabbing? So there's that jabbing, that why are you jabbing in this very moment? What's your desired outcome? Are you trying to hurt a guy? Are you trying to give him something to keep him at bay? Or are you trying to set something up? Or any other variation of reasons why you could be doing it? Even down to feigning. I thought I knew how to feign. And then you come here, and I don't want to just drop this gem out there like that, but I said, I'm going to just drop a part of it. In the UK, we think we're fainting just because we put our hand out and we don't punch. Usually that's what it is, right? Or maybe you pop the shoulder. But we're doing everything in normally in the same rhythm and flow. But really, to really show a faint, your rhythm has to change. Because if it all looks the same, what did you actually give that person to let them know that you're intending to hit them or do something different? Um, and then there's other levels to it, down to even the intention you set in your mind when you're doing certain things and what that how that translates in your physicality to affect the opponent before you either not do whatever it was you were going to do. Or maybe you're just checking the reaction. Um, There's just so many things, man. I learned so much. I, like, I, I was so looking forward to coming back and just demonstrating and letting people ask me, like, wow, what changed? So I can be like, whoa, guys, come around the campfire. <laughs> um, but it is the way things happen sometimes. But it's interesting you say that because, like, I sit there sometimes, I'll talk to these boxers and they'll go, mate, can you just watch my fight and tell me what you think? And I'll have like three or four pages of notes after watching the fight. And in my head, I'm like, I can't tell him half the stuff I've just written here because you won't box mm. again. Because <laughs> for, for me... they'll think it's overwhelming. Like, I, I, I'm mostly self-taught. And what I mean by self-taught is I've been beaten up enough to know what works and what doesn't work mm. and to understand why. Yeah. Because no one, no one wanted to help me. So I had to figure it out. Like, okay, 
if I if I talk my hips this way, is it harder? Is it not harder? And then so you start to realize, and I always talk about boxing as being this, it's a full body art. Like, whereas mm-hmm. British coaches, they almost teach you just from the hands. That's it. Yeah, I, most of the times. Yeah. Most of the time. Yeah, and one thing I, I learned when I was at the Ingle Gym was it's not about the hands. The hands are the least of your problem. Because, and I remember, this is how it was broken down to me. How many times do you think you'll throw your punches in 10 rounds? I was like, I don't know, maybe 600, 700 times. So, okay. So, let's say each punch is a tenth of a second. I was like, okay. I was like, so how much time have you actually been throwing punches? 70 seconds in a 10 round fight. What are you doing Mm. with the rest of your time? And I remember Brendan saying, the rest of the time is actual boxing. Yeah. And so, who coaches that? In the UK, no one ever coaches that. They don't that non-punching time. Yeah, they don't. And I'll tell you another thing as well. It's even down to the way we attack in the UK. This is another thing that got onto me so much. All right, so for example, I got into sparring with this guy one time, and he was shorter than me. So obviously, being this is like one of the first spars I had when I came out here, and um, I'm thinking, all right, cool. Well, I'm taller than him, so just jab him, right? And every UK coach pretty much will be like, yeah, just jab him. So I've gone in, jab, I hit him. Jab, kind of blocks it, kind of scuffs it. Moving around, jab, slip, counter, boom. I got clocked with the right hand. And then I'm like, okay, cool. So I don't jab for like the next 30 seconds or so. Maybe I faint or whatever. Oh, I just don't jab to his head. And then I get back into it. So after, Julian says to me, well, why do you think he countered your jab? And I was like, I don't know. He was just that quick in it. He's like, no, it's because you threw exactly the same jab three times in a row. And not because the jab was the only shot I threw. It's just that the jab was exactly the same every single time. So it was predictable. It came from the same place. It was at the same pace. And on top of that, another thing, you, so every listener on this right now, watch it next time you watch a British firefighting. Um, 70% of them will do this. If, you're, if they're orthodox, when they jab, the right foot will swing towards the left and they'll sort of pivot left as they jab. And there'll be a slight lean forward when they do it. If the if um, south foot will be the other way around, the left foot will swing towards the right and there'll be a slight lean um, to the, the forward sometimes when they do it. And it's, I see it repeatedly over and over and over again. There was a British boxer that got knocked out recently doing the same thing. I forgot who it was. And he got sparked out. And before, like two years ago, I would have seen him like, and I would have said, oh, that guy was so sharp, man. That just got him. But now I look at him, I'm like, of course you got counted. Look what you were doing. Your feet came close. Your your back foot was tilted to the side. And, you know, you, you for that moment when your back foot swings, you're not in position. But also the fact that your back foot is swinging means that you're not pushing a jab from your back foot, which is already fundamentally wrong. You know, so... There's a whole bunch of things, man. And I'm not trying to shit on the UK because obviously I, I got good to a certain point in the UK. It's just that if you want to go to that next level, you got you got to travel out and learn from other people, man. Do you know, one of the things I learned when I was young and I was lucky enough that I was good at one sport, rugby, where I got as high as you can for my age, right? Mm-hmm. And we were talking 
And they said, do you know the difference between you and a professional in your position? And I went, no. And they said, they can't do what you can. They don't have the skills you do. They don't have the speed you do. They don't make errors. They are precise mm. and they are accurate. And I remember, mm. and so he was explaining to me like there used to be a guy called Peter Buxton that used to play. Just a clogger. Like, like when you've played rugby, you know what a clogger is, right? It's a big lump mm. that does really basic stuff. Didn't make mistakes. When he got the ball, didn't drop it. He never gave up possession, made every one of his tackles, always made distance when he ran, right? He was just solid. Mm. And that was so informative because when I see a lot of guys in the UK, they're all trying to be Floyd or they're all trying to be Manny or they're all trying to be Roy Jones. They're trying, they're, they're trying to do all of this stuff they see on the highlight reels, right? Mm. Until you realize someone like Roy doesn't make many mistakes. Someone like Tava doesn't make many mistakes. Someone like Tony, their error counts are so low because mm -hmm. their fundamentals are so tight. Yeah. And in Britain, whose fundamentals are tight? Who would you look at and go, oh, his fundamentals are, wow. Wow, this guy, he's in the right place at the right time. I say to young boxers, I say, because this is what I do when I evaluate someone. I'll pause the video a hundred times randomly during the fight. And I just want to see if that person's in the right position. That's it. All right. And I'll be like, okay. Right yeah. And you just look. And a lot of British guys are, like you said, the feet are all wrong, their hands low, and they can't even see that there's a right hand ready to come. All this sort of stuff. Because, and I've said it before, so people are used to me saying this. About five people in this country know how to train professional boxers. That's it. Oh, wow. okay. Five. Yeah, you, you said the next thing I was going to say. Because I was actually going to say, in, the, in, in, in defense of the nation, there are a number of people who get it right, in my opinion. And when you said about five people, it sounds about right as far as I'm aware of anyway. Um, there are a few people who do it. And there are a couple of high-profile people who do it good, um, who, who do it in an effective way. But for the most part, like you said, we think we're training the feet, but we're not. And it's even down to if we see someone move from one side of the ring to the other or just move laterally in any way, we're like, wow, they've got great footwork. But no, they just moved. The great footwork is a whole different story. You know, if you pause the video at any point during the moving, would you catch them slipping, as you just said? And if the answer is yes, then it wasn't great footwork. Because I remember in the old days at the Ingle gym, and like I, I maintain this, Brendan Ingle's probably the only person I've met in British boxing where I was like, he could have gone to America and hung with any trainer there. Because like he talked about the jab in reference to an elephant's trunk. And he goes, you see it when an <laughs> elephant uses its trunk? Look how many different uses it has for its trunk. And he goes, that's what your lead hand is. So he doesn't even talk in terms of jabs. It's just a lead mm. hand. That's the hand closest to the opponent. What are you going to do to provoke your opponent into doing what you want them to do? That was what he'd say. I've probably reworded it, but you're like, okay. And then I see British coaches and they have their guys, like they literally just see their jab as a scoring punch. It's like, nah, the thing can disrupt someone. It can blind someone. You can do whatever you want with that lead hand. You've just got to be creative and you've got to be consistent in terms of yeah. don't I mean, don't give up counter-punching opportunities. You have to know what you're doing and why. Because mm -hmm. 
how many people do you see in the gym, Uma, will, will just jab for four rounds? Because I still do that. I just jab for the first four rounds. Yeah. Because you can get yeah, bored I, enough I, to be creative. Again, you have to understand. Yeah, exactly. I, well, yeah, you just tapped into the next one. I was going to say, you do that and you have to understand the different types of jabs and why you're throwing them, which is essentially what you just said. And then I'm trying to think, let, let, let's bring it back to, to some of your cool box alumni. Have you been following Lawrence's story recently? Um, not too much, because honestly, I've been kind of in my own world um, over the past month or so, just like grinding hard, starting a new life and whatnot. So I've been prioritizing myself. That's why I've not even been active on Instagram much. But I did speak with Lawrence briefly. Um, it might have been over the weekend. I think it was, I think it was on Saturday. We exchanged a few messages. Um, I know he's in Dubai now. Um, so we discussed him being in Dubai. We were, we were actually meant to get on a phone call Sunday. None of us called each other. But um, uh, no, I haven't been keeping up too yeah, closely, he, to be fair. Because I think, yeah, he's firing a few missiles at Matchroom. And I think 258 now. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I saw, well, I didn't see the 258 bit. But I saw some stuff with the Matchroom stuff. Um, I, don't, I didn't see what he said. But I remember going on Twitter and seeing some stuff about um, Lawrence saying some things about Matchroom and whether or not he has a fight left or he doesn't or whatever. Um, I didn't ask him any of that when we spoke because we weren't actually even talking about boxing. Um, so I, I don't actually know exactly what's happening. Well, it, it, so I, I, it's one of those stories I find really fascinating because I'm, I'm seeing people online going, ah, Matchroom made you who you are. You should be more respectful, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And then I always say, but you don't understand what he was promised. And I say, the career Lawrence has today is not what was promised. And Lawrence no, is not thing, stupid. It's not even just that. So being from the inside, from the get-go, Lawrence was never treated favorably at Matchroom. So yeah, he got a good deal, but he got a good deal off the back of being managed by AJ, who was Eddie Holmes' golden boy at the time. So there was that bargain in power. Um, and then I remember even like the fights and stuff, like even the Isaac Chamberlain fight, as much as that was a good fight and whatnot, um, like for, for his career at the time, there were things that Matchroom would do where he just wasn't being treated, um, I would say, as favorably as some of his peers at the time, is the best way to put it. And um, there, were, there were just things that were done where you could tell it almost felt like Matchroom was promoting him because it kind of had to because obviously his contract he had a contract and the contract was based on AJ being a golden boy at the time and the biggest boxer in the UK at the time and whatnot. Um, so yeah the, basically what I'm saying is Matchroom have done him no favours like they've not as far as I know I'm aware of gone out of the way to do any favours for him everything he has today he has because Matchroom have had to fulfill contractual obligations and he's just kept on winning. Like, if he had lost at any point in time, I don't, I, I, yeah, I don't think they would even half be pushing him like they are. And then the question is, how much have they pushed him actually? Well, they haven't. And I remember we were all at York Hall together. Oh, I can't remember when this was. And I remember saying I to I think Lawrence, it was like 2018. Yeah, and I said to Lawrence... Write down a list of everything they promise you. 12 months later, look back and see what was delivered. You ever want to know Mm. how to manage anybody 
who's meant to be providing you with a service, write down what was promised, look at what was delivered. And I have a feeling that he's looked at what was promised and what was delivered from Matchroom and from 258, and he's gone, nothing really. Yeah. Where's the investment um, budget? I don't think there has been one for him. This is the thing. Um, because even like if you look at interviews with Eddie Hearn, especially after like the Matty Eskins fight, because people are like, oh, that was a stink car, lots of hugging and all that. Eddie didn't back him one bit. He just threw him under the bus. But we all, not threw him under the bus, you know, like O'Hara or whatever, but he, he just like, he went along with that narrative. But when you hear Eddie talk about any of the fighters that he likes to back up, you know, he always, he like, if anyone can spin a narrative, it's Eddie Hearn. And he just didn't care to try to spin a narrative. It was just like, yep, yeah, got to be honest. It was this, it was that. And yada, yada, yada. And th that's how they've always gone on with him. He's just, like I said, he was fortunate that he was in a position to get a good contract and they had to fulfill the contractual obligations and he's always won. And that was always a problem because they were just like, can someone beat this guy so we don't have to actually invest it? <laughs> because I'm like, how did Braders go to Australia? What, Matchroom didn't have money? How has Mokabu not come over to give Lawrence that WBC belt? Like, all of this stuff. And, yeah, all of that. And that's when you realise they do him wrong, but the boxing public don't see this stuff behind the scenes. And they think he's just... No, they don't, but... Yeah, from a boxing um, public's perspective, I guess, if I'm going to be completely objective, their perspective is, if they've had more than one fight where there was a lot of um, holding, then they're within the rights to be put off. That being said, though, I am of the mindset that so many people like to follow what seems to be the cool thing to say. So if someone popular says Lawrence is holding a lot, then there'll be a whole bunch of people that are quick to be like, yeah, he holds a lot anyway. They jump down that bandwagon. And similarly, if someone popular says that someone else is the next best in slash bread, they all jump on it. There's a bunch of people who lack the well I guess they got the ability but there's a lot of people that lack the interest in thinking for themselves and then is because of that it becomes easy for certain things to become trendy and a lot of times it becomes unjustly so because Lawrence has had a couple of fights where there's been a lot of hugging but he's also delivered so many great knockouts so why are we only focusing not we but why are those people only focusing on the fights where there was hugging you know yeah, I agree. I've I've always been Timo Coley. I like him. I think he's a great young man. And I think he boxes how anyone would that had been fast-tracked, right? Because it's not mm -hmm. like... He wasn't fast-tracked beyond his ability. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is he was fast-tracked beyond his experience. So he's had to figure out how to win. Yeah, he didn't have a lot of amateur fights and then still managed to go to the Olympics. And then as a pro, I think he's had like 16 fights now. And he's been a world champion for a couple of fights. That's very, in the cruiserweight division. That's very fucking quick. Yeah. You know? So, I know, it, basically, if Lawrence was someone else that people liked a bit more, they'll be like, well, he's learning on the road. He's learning on, you know, he's learning on the way. He's building his experience. But unfortunately, he hasn't been gifted that. And perhaps it's the confidence that he carries himself with that drives a lot of people mad. Um, because a lot of people don't have that same level of confidence and it, it irks them the wrong way when they see someone else with it. Which I've always found weird about us as a human race, where <laughs> we, we don't like people who are sure of themselves. 
But it's like, isn't that what you want in life? No, because they highlight how unsure that you are about things in your life, which makes you feel, this is the ego, by the way, because the ego needs somebody else to be more, so it could be more, somebody else to be less, sorry, so that it can be more. So if it deems someone to appear to be more in an aspect that it wants to be more at, then it feels less and then it starts to lash out in different ways. That was a long way to say, I know a lot of people said this in so many ways, it's usually because someone's that confident and they're doing good. It's a reflection of what we could do if we believed in ourselves as much and carried ourselves with as much confidence, but we're not. But here's so the crazy thing, right? the ego gets mad about it. When, when, whenever, I, whenever I've done talks on leadership, and I, I tell people the truth, I say my confidence doesn't come from the fact that I know I'll win. It comes from the fact that I know I'll compete. Now, I may lose to someone who's just better than me. Yeah, that, I, that sounds like that loser British No, no, it does, no, no. Is no, it taking part in no, that? Is. No, no, it's not. No, it's not, Uma. And here's why. I can only oh. execute what I can execute, if you see what I mean. Like, right. I can't, I mean, how can I put it? I can't dunk. Now, mm-hmm. physics works against me, right? <laughs> that ain't going to stop me playing ball, though. What I do know is in the bits that I can do, you're going to have a hard time. And it's always been my mindset when I play rugby or anything. Well, I remember when I'd spar mm. guys who were better than me. Um, who was it who was preparing for the... Like when Javan was preparing for the Pan Ams and the Worlds and I had to spar him. I'm mm. not that level. Do you know what I mean? That's a fact. Yeah. I'm not that level. But I tell you what I was. I was the most competitive version of myself I could be. And I dared him to be better. And I was like, if you drop your level, yeah. you're going to get hurt. Yeah. Right? Now, when in positions where I'm, I know that I'm better than someone, I'm going to be the same. I'm going to play to my best. And I'm like, if you can't keep up, this is going to hurt you. Fine. And because what happens sometimes, Uma, is people get obsessed with talking about the win. And that's okay. But then when the win doesn't come, they don't have anything to fall back on. So, okay. Mm. So, you lost, and then you lost again, you lost again. At no point have you asked yourself, was that the best version of me? Because think how many people quit boxing. They have one sparring session, they get slapped about, and that's them done. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, 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 mate, mate, mate. You were in there to get battered because you don't have any tools. Mm. And so if you, if you can't derive your self-confidence from the fact that you're willing to compete and be the best version of you, you'll never even be in position to win. You know, yeah. like for example, you're going to go for a role, right? Mm-hmm. Ho- hopefully Black Panther 2. Oh yeah. Well, well, you they, some of that. unfortunately there is a vacancy. But, there is? Well, remember thinking, Oh, unfortunately, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But if you audition for that, they're guys who've acted longer than you been in more high profile films than you but you're like the thing I'm going to put down in this audition good luck to the rest of you and then that's it yeah. that's all you can do basically and what that's done is even even with a podcast they're guys who pay companies to boost their podcasts I don't have that money but what I have is the desire to do something that's good consistently mm. and we close that gap on people and that's why we're able yeah. to say, where are your numbers coming from? Because they don't look real. Yeah, consistency is a key to most things. 
No, hundred percent. We've got to also talk about Dan. Like we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't ignore Dan. Um, our good old Dan Aziz. My guy, Dan Aziz. Literally the Cinderella man. <laughs> Tell me, what are you saying? Did you watch his British title fight? He did, didn't you? I the one with Jose Burr. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was lit. He he turned up. Yes, that's exactly the expression I'd use. Like he, it was the first time you saw the Dan we all knew existed. Yep, one hundred percent. Being a tall guy who sparred him so many times, I've yeah, I've known for years. And remember, Dan was sparring Lawrence and I day in day out for years. Yeah, amongst other people. So him fighting someone as taller than him is is it feels like home. And a lot of people are like, oh, you know, Jose Burton's taller and yada, yada, yada. I was thinking, well, you wait and see. <laughs> no. I remember that in the evening, I was talking to to one of the wise men at Sky. And mm-hmm. I just said, I said, tomorrow you're going to see why you should sign Dan Aziz. In fact, you should have signed him when he fought Charlie Duffield. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know why they stepped yeah. in. Well, he, I imagine certain people were talking. We won't say who. Mm. But I said, I said, sign him. Just sign him. So, oh, but what's he like? I said, don't worry about that. Give him the platform. He will deliver for you. Mm-hmm. That's what he's designed to do. He will deliver for you. Yeah. And they were like, ah. Oh. And then afterwards, I, I was like, what did I tell you? What did I tell you guys? Because they don't want to, you know what I mean? Like people, that's how you build credibility. Because I said, this is exactly how he will win. And I said, yeah, I said he'll crush Jose Burton. I said, Jose Burton has no business at 175. He'll get absolutely crushed. Because you think Dan's... he should be a cruiserweight? No, he's a, he, he's a tweener. He's not big enough for cruiser, and he wouldn't be strong enough. He's too big for light heavy. He's the sort of guy that you'd almost dig up Nathan cleverly and say, mate, you two fight each other. Get on with it. Mm, Do you know, the, they're, they're, they're guys who are just tweeners. They're not light yeah. heavies, they're not cruisers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. And they could have entertaining fights if people just match them, just except there'll be no titles. Hmm. I see what you mean. But no, I'm I'm intrigued to see what they do with Dan now, right? Because he's at that point where so am I. They can't keep dragging him around this British circuit like they've been doing. Well, he's calling out all the British guys, so he. I won't be surprised if his next fight is against the British guy. And I think whoever it is, it'll be an entertaining fight. Definitely worth buying tickets for. If I was going to watch a British, I'd like to see him fight Lyndon Arthur. Oh, I don't know if that's my favourite fight for him. Because everyone else is tired. Oh, no. no, because I don't know that it'll be as entertaining as some of the other guys. Like Dan Aziz versus... Um, Johnson um, or Callum Craig Johnson. Richards. Yeah, Callum Johnson, Craig Richards, Joshua Boatsy, um, Anthony Yard. Like, all the, like, Dan Aziz versus any of them guys is a fucking entertaining fight. Him against, um, stylistically, I'm saying this, by the way, him against um, Lyndon Arthur, I don't know if that's stylistically that entertaining of a fight. But I actually think it's, I think it goes, it, it goes, I think whoever wins, it's a one-sided fight. I don't see a back and forth in it. But I think Dan needs that. Dan, Dan needs... Because if you think about how they're positioning Dan, he needs... Uh, what's the, he needs people that he can get stoppages and look good getting those stoppages against. 
because he's got to mm. he's got to make up that ground, right? I see what you're saying. Jay Beast's going to be tied up. They're saying with Bivol. Mm. Um, Yard's going to be tied up with. Bivol. Wait, JB with Bivol? That's what Eddie Hearn's saying. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, I, I still think the Ramirez Bivol fight makes more sense, but. Yeah. And then, then I don't know what they do with Craig. To be honest with you, that do you, is, is Craig in the position where he's got to rebuild? I don't know. But that light heavyweight, these guys should—they should have been for each other by now. It's taking too long. I think I think Craig's next fight shouldn't be a, a domestic clash. I think his next fight should be someone foreign that is a is a competitive fighter, but. Craig is the winner. Um, Craig is a favorite stylistically. That sounds like so I'm a not saying, fight. Yeah, I'm not saying his next opponent should be a walkover. It just should be someone that stylistically suits him. I think that um, like a Pascal. Yeah, because he's had two very hard fights. He had Bivol and then he had Boachi. I think his next fight should be, again, like I said, he has a credible opponent who stylistically favors um, Craig because then yes you expect him to win and you expect him to win in a fight where he he only takes a lot of damage if he chooses to if that makes sense yeah. but yeah I'll be intrigued to see what I just when I look at Craig I'm almost like and I've said it to him for years at any point because he's fit and he's strong I'm like how come you never move through the gears because when he fought Boatsy, it was the Bivol pace, right? It, it, and when he fought Andre Sterling, it was the same pace. Like, it, it's, it's, it's the same pace and the same tempo. And I'm like, wow. Mate, just, honestly, because mm. there were points with Boatsy, I was like, Craig, if you just just go for it for the next 60 seconds, I think you might have him. Yeah, but the question is, like, is he trained that way? And I'm, I don't mm -hmm. know if he is. And I'm not saying it in terms of so... If you do sprints or you go for a run and you run, you pop the pace up in the last bit or you do it when you're hitting the pads or hitting the back, it's one thing. It's another thing when there's a strategy that you have in a ring when you're sparring. And then that's what really embeds it in. So the question is, I wonder if he does that when he's sparring. Does he raise the pace for the last minute in sparring? Does he go through the different gears during the round in sparring? Does he have rounds where his coaches are like, look, in this round, I want to see second, fourth and fifth gear mix them up I need to see each gear at least once let's go you know so I don't know if he's trained that way in the first if, place if be, I'd be surprised if pro trainers weren't doing that but then again in this country I wouldn't be surprised at the same time it's and that's kind of why we don't produce world champions that reign for years mm. you know look at look, the standard British model get the guy to a mandatory position he wins a title couple of soft defences then the mandatory kicks in and the belt's just handed over <laughs> so I'm laughing because as you were saying it there's so many fighters I can think of that that was literally the path yeah because I think the expression I used was these guys are just world British champions we produce a lot of them yeah yeah, you know, like people and I'm talking laughing. About Lee Wood uh, fighting Santa Cruz. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm laughing, understanding that I, I easily could have been one of those people. So I'm not laughing because I think I'm better than anyone. Anyone. I'm just laughing because it's so true. Yeah, like Lee Wood's now. Like I want to fight Leo Santa Cruz, and you're like, mate, you just fought Mick Conlon. Like, don't you know? Let's not let's not act like that was 
the creme de la creme you just fought there. Mm-hmm. No, nah, but Santa Cruz, yo, Santa Cruz has been softened up a little bit, isn't it? So you don't know. Yeah, but he's still Santa Cruz, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah I think um, there's a big golfing class, to be fair. But who's training Lee Wood right now? I think it's Ben Davison. You see, so he's one of those people that's the equalizer from UK because he, he gets the nuances. He, I remember speaking to some coaches when I was in the UK and I would talk about Ben Davidson and I'd be like, this guy knows what he's talking about. Like, they were like, well, anyone could be an analyst. The guy's never done it. He just, he, he just, he just looks at it and watches it and he like, he's got some ideas and he puts them down. I'm like, well, the shit he's saying is literally working. So, so I'm, I'm half and half on it. No, so I'm half and half on Ben Davison. And I think there's a valid argument to say good analysts aren't good trainers. I also think there's an argument to say he's been given Rolls Royces, right? Oh, 100%. I'm not, I'm mm. not even going to argue that because until we find a fighter or we introduce a fighter that he's trained from scratch, we can't mm. say that. However, if you understand that everyone has a role to play, we can't be caught up on this idea that everyone has to go through a traditional route and traditional this because then we sound like a great tracksuit brigade. You know, if you've got, if you say that most trainers can get can get fighters to a certain level and that's the limit, and Ben Davidson is the guy that can take them from there onwards, why stop the fighters' development? Point taken, but he's never actually done that. that so, so done what? So he's never actually taken someone and really done that turnaround thing in my eyes, which I'm not saying he can't. I'm just saying he hasn't. Because mm. my real test is this. What does he believe in himself? Because you know, this is what happens when you train people. There has to be something you believe in because you can't just be, I'm going to go on the internet and get this bit for that guy and go on the internet and get this bit for that guy. And Number one, that's just too much to have to hold in your head. Number mm-hmm. two, it never, it's never consistent. Whereas if you start from a very central idea of what a good boxer looks like, yeah, I can say this to you because you understand. It's like developing software, right? Mm-hmm. I need to understand what the requirements are. What does this thing look like when it's good? And then I just mm-hmm. break that down into logical sized, logical sized pieces of work that we can then do. But if you, yeah. if you join all of that up together, you get your software. Like we're talking uh-huh. on on whatever it's FaceTime audio, right? I'm sure somewhere in Apple, there's a diagram that breaks down all the different components in there. But at the top, it says it has to do these things well. Uh-huh. And in boxing, you rarely get that. Guys are just guys are so low in the detail, and it's like, yeah, I just yeah. I just do it off the top of my head. And I say to every fighter, if you can't show me a written down plan of how you develop. You're not going to develop. Yeah. Even if it's not written down, the coaches need to be consistent in what they have. And like you said, they need to know what they believe in and be consistent in that message that they're putting across to you. Um, and then again, with regards to Ben, um, I think that he, maybe he started that way. I don't know. But I think that over the the years he's been around boxing, at least since he started working with Fury years ago, I feel that he's been around enough great minds and enough great um, environments to pick up things. And he's had enough experience now. 
to employ into practice a lot of the theory that he's picked up. You know, you got to remember he's had camps of fury and Billy Joe and a whole bunch of other top rate fighters in different parts of the world, Spain and Vegas and wherever else he's been. Um, and in all these places, there are other great minds that are around that come about and you pick things up and he's been an assistant coach in places and he's had assistants in other places and you, you end up, maybe he started as a Fury guy, but at this point, I think now he's had enough experience where you got to say you give him his props. The only thing I would say is, yes, he does get Ferraris to work with. And, you know, everyone plays their part, like I said, because there are a lot of coaches that if you gave them a Ferrari, they'll mess it up. And, you know, there are people that you've mentioned in this podcast who do that. And I wouldn't mention names and please don't because I'm, I'm quite close to some of them. But there are some people, there are there are some coaches that if you give them a Ferrari, they would mess it up. But you give him a Ferrari, Ben Davidson, and he makes that shit perform. So give him his credit. Well, no, he just doesn't crash it. <laughs> no, he makes it perform. Come on, give him his credit. Mm, wait, the one I'll give him credit for is Fury because he essentially got Fury down, right? Like, mm -hmm. if someone says to me, what's the tick in the box you give Ben Davidson? Fury brought him all the way down and held him together until Fury went and got a real trainer. Sorry, I'm just going to put it that way, right? That's got, it's true though. He he got a real trainer, and what did Sugar Hill do? Pared everything down and said, mm. "You'll need all of that stuff. You're six foot nine. This is all you need. This is what we're going to work on." Devastated yeah. after that, and then yeah, I mean you're comparing. Ben Davidson to the son of arguably the best trainer since Customer. Well, maybe uh, more. Well, so because because it's uncle and nephew, right? And it's not like you know Sugar Hill was everywhere at all times. He he said it. He said I went off to be my own man. There's some things I could hit my uncle up for, but I went off to be my own man. But at the elite level, if if look, Ben's working with elite level guys. We have to compare like with like. If he's mm. not prepared to be compared to Sugar Hill, he shouldn't be having the kind of fighters he's got. If you gave me Josh Taylor, if you gave me Billy Joe Saunders in my stable, I'm like, you got to compare me to Virgil and you got to compare me to those guys. Mm. That's the arena yeah. I'm in now. Yeah, that, that's that would, true. That would be my argument. Like, I, yeah. I always, I, I'm on the thing that says, I want to see Ben succeed because I think when you've got better coaches, you get the knowledge transfer. I just, for me, he's just got to convince me. Well, he doesn't have to, but I'm not convinced yet. But he's got a young kid, yeah. Jamie Shakiva, young heavyweight, who I know really well. So I can mm -hmm. track that development. I can go, okay, I can see what you've added here. Yeah. And then also Chris Congo. If he can turn Chris Congo into a monster, which Chris Congo is capable of being. Is he training Chris Congo now? Yeah. Oh, wow, that's dope. Yeah, so let's see if he can turn Chris around because we're going to answer two questions with those guys. Can he create a fighter? And can he do as you say, take a guy who's been around the circuit and elevate him? Yeah, you know what? Chris Congo is a very good fighter, but I wouldn't class him as like a world-level Ferrari or whatever. So if Ben Davidson can turn him into Ferrari, that'd be a good case study. Yeah, then, then, then he can just say, listen, no one tell me anything. Yeah. And we'd all have to go, yeah, this guy knew what he was on about all along. Yeah. Sorry. If and Chris Congo suddenly becomes a Jerome Ennis or something, then you got to give Ben his props. Hey, listen, and I speak, I speak to Jerome's dad, Bozy. Wow. 
there, there's a guy that like, I really want to go to Philadelphia and just soak up. <laughs> Those guys, the, the nuance, like you said earlier, it's the nuance. It's the nuances, man. They're the guys they that make all the big differences. Because they were like, why do you British guys throw your one two and then take that big jump backwards? It's like, why are you giving up the real estate? Yeah. Yep. He's like, yep. now you got to go all the way back to where yep. you just left from. Yeah. Like, well, there, there, there's so much there's so much stuff we do in the UK um, that when I there's so much stuff I learned put it this way um, 2021 where I was just like why have I never learned this before why why, is, why has no one around me been talking about this like, why am I here as someone who fought for WBA gold title learning things that seem so basic but I'm just hearing about them for the first time. Best you don't answer that question. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> but, but it's part it's part of why I encourage yeah. anyone who is able to. Because remember, I, the first time I came out here was 2018. I came out here twice in 2018. I went Houston, did a gym circuit over there. And then the second time I came to LA and went to Vegas, did a gym circuit in both, um, which is actually how I met Julian in the first place at Wildcard. Um, and even that, then I was like, okay, it, it, don't get me wrong. There's also a lot of terrible trainers here and a lot of people that just don't know what they're doing. And you get a lot of fighters, American fighters tend to talk the most smoke and a lot of times don't back it up. And then the ego gets in the way and then they get dropped in sparring and they'll, they'll swear to the gods that you hit them in the back of the head when you didn't. Like you get all of that stuff here. But around all of that, there is still a very good number of people who know what they're doing. But you know why that is, Uma? Knowledge transfer. The Americans are so good at knowledge transfer. And I always use that example of Ronnie Shields. Like, we kind of know Ronnie Shields in his modern incarnation, right? You know, mm -hmm. he trained, trains a Charlo. I think he trained Trout, all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But people forget he was... I trained at his gym as well a few times. Yeah, I remember. And people go, yeah. okay, Ronnie Shields. But I'm like, that guy was like... He came up under Georgie Benton. He trained the 88 Olympic team. You know I mean, he was in camps with Mike Tyson. So before we even knew who Ronnie Shields was, he was around people that he was able to just draw down on. Yeah, he trained the Charlos from when they were kids. Yeah. And that's what we know him for, but look at how many years of work he had before he even got the Charlos. Yeah. And so I yeah. look at Britain and I go, where are these guys learning from? Who, who's yeah. sitting with Joe Gallagher? That's why I like seeing Anthony Crawler with Joe Gallagher. Because at least I'm like, you're getting something from someone. Yeah, I actually like that too. I really like that with um, Anthony Crawler. You're, you're, you're right though. There isn't as much transfer here. Because what, what I've noticed is here, a lot of people are humble enough. As much as they're big-headed, but they're humble enough. to. It's almost like a culture to serve under another coach and then start their own thing if they choose to. You see it all the time. Assistant coaches are still coming here. In the UK, they're really not. Some of the top coaches have assistant coaches. Most of the other coaches don't. And when they have an assistant coach, it's usually just someone to hold a pad for them so that their shoulders don't hurt. Yeah, but Emmanuel Stewart had who? Bill Miller. And look what Bill Miller did with James Tony. Mm-hmm. 
it's, uh-huh. it's, it's mind-boggling. And I don't think we fix it anytime soon because remember, the key criteria in this country is did you make enough money from scrap metal to buy your own gym? If you did, that makes you a trainer. Sometimes you just need to form an agreement with the gym and go and start training people. But, but then you get too big, you get kicked out. Like, and, and this is the thing. Like in Britain, there's this massive insecurity culture. Massive insecurity culture. Because you imagine I go to someone's gym. Maybe I train my guys in the peacock. And now my guys are slapping up the peacock guys and sparring. I'm not, not saying this would really happen because, you know, I know people get offended by the stuff I say on this podcast. But I'm saying if that happened, you think they're going to keep me in that gym? Hell no. So I bet you got to go. Mm. Yeah, maybe not a peacock because they're actually, mine bars is hella cool. He's blessed. No, no, um, yeah, but, but I hear that. I think, but it, it, whoever owns the gym, there's a lot of insecurity in this country. Mm. A lot of it. And I'll yeah, the boxes and, and everyone thinks everyone's copying them. But so what if they are? Uh, I know, but everyone thinks everyone's copying them all the time. But my issue is, so? You mm. I mean, like, like you don't own the jab. You don't own the backhand. You don't own the uppercut. Like, come on, man. Like, we're playing with very yeah. limited variables here. Well, this is the thing. It's because the knowledge is limited. Maybe that's all they know. So they get bothered if someone else is picking it up because ultimately the rule boxing like you said is about understanding what you're doing when you're doing it why you're doing it and the nuances which are a lot harder to copy it's very hard to copy the nuances even if you're in training in the same gym as someone but if all you know is throw the right hand this way then of course you're going to be bothered if someone takes it because then you're like well if everyone starts learning to throw the right hand that way or teaching then where does that leave me and a lot of trainers aren't trying to improve they're not trying to improve. You know, I remember once, there's a trainer, and I'm not going to say who, reasonably high-profile trainer. He saw me training someone, right? And there's certain things that I do that I know no one in this country does yet. I'm going to say yet because knowledge travels and I can't own everything mm-hmm. forever. And I remember coming back a few months later and seeing him do the same thing. And I said, ah, let me say nothing because no idea is original. But not even just mm-hmm. the little little head nod to go, okay, yeah, 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 I, I saw you do it, I picked it up. You know, that kind of acknowledgement, because you need that, right? Sometimes you need someone to go, okay, you got some things there that I can learn from too. But people here just, mm-hmm. yeah, like you say, they just steal it and then act like they did it. And then we'll do like a YouTube video explaining it. And you're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, they learn it being in the gym. That's where you learn shit. Okay? Oh, man, like the hustle is serious. Like- but Jose, so who else have you been looking out for in terms of UK or do you just not engage with UK boxing as much? Because I know like, uh, Zach Kelly fought Jermaine Brown, so I don't know if you watch that one for the English. I know, I'm not following it that close. I, I mean, I watch, <laughs> if there's a big fight, I watch the Shizora card. Um, if I've got a friend on a card, I would watch it normally if I can. Because you got to remember the time differences of things for me as well. Oh, so so like most of the fights, are, yeah, most of the fights on a Saturday in the UK are starting at 11am for me and going on to like 3, 4pm. Uh, no, go to 3 p.m. maybe. But, but that's my Saturday. Like, if I had somewhere to be on a Saturday, I can't be in to watch it. Um, you know, so a lot of times that happens. What about um, US shows? Do you get out to any of the West Coast shows? Yeah, occasionally I do. I'm actually due to go to another one this month. Um, you just reminded me. I need to hear someone. Um, I do occasionally. But like I said, the last few months, really all of this year, from January 
I just like, because I, offic- I only officially moved to the US in December. So I went back for Christmas to London and then came back just before the new year. And I was like, okay, cool. Now I'm here. So 1st of January, I hit the ground working and just grafting. And that's just where I'm at right now. I'm so, like you said, I came down from fighting on TV and what have you as a professional and having good fights that are paying decent money. So now I'm having to start a new career right from the bottom. So I'm just grafting hard, man, day in, day out. Even like now, um, today, before we got on this call, I, I did like two auditions. I was working on a third. Another one came in through the phone just as we're speaking. Um, I'm managing a whole bunch of variables and whatnot, a lot of ad, ad hoc stuff. So all of that is to say, it doesn't leave me with too much time to follow the boxing as closely. I'm not a casual still, but I'm not as up to date with everything as I used to be. Maybe if someone offered me a job as a pundit, you know, or commentator, then I would have reason to be more invested. Hey, hit Eddie up and say, hey, Eddie, I'm out here if you need me. Yeah, he ain't gonna give a shit. You never know. Um, I mean, I'll mention it. Actually, I mentioned it to Frank Smith before because he was he came here last. Time. I think Mackinson came to fight, and I saw him at the way in at the event for the Golden Boy show. Yeah, um, and I saw him and I told him and he's like, "Yeah, we'll let you know." I, I ain't heard nothing. Yeah. But I've got one last question for you. Tell me. How's the relationship with Christopher Lovejoy now? Did you know I haven't spoken to him for like nearly a year. Probably a year. Yeah, I don't know. I think he changed his number or something, or I don't know what happened. Um, and then I just didn't keep up with him. Manuel um, Chow beat the humility back into him. Well, I don't know, because he's still out. He, he, he still does the same stuff he's always done. Um, I guess that's his hustle. Um, just keep calling yeah. out people until someone pays him five figures. Or something. You know, a lot of people here are hustlers, like I said. Yeah. A, a lot of Americans are proper hustlers, bro. And like, they, they, bro, check this. The other day, like I said, on the track, this guy that was training people boxing, yeah, went to have a go. And then um, my boy Christian's hitting this guy's bodysuit. And then the guy who's coaching him is like, oh yeah, I'm his coach, whatever. And then after my boy Christian's done, he's like, oh yeah, you, you got to put, you got to put on the suit now. And my boy's like, well, he's like, yeah, you got to put a suit on. If, if you're going to give it out, you're going to get some. And so my boy Christian, he's hella strong. This guy's a beast of a man. So he's like, all right, cool, whatever, because this other guy looks like some skinny guy or whatever. So he puts it on, and the guy's like, yeah. I was like, oh, I want to get some of that. And the guy's like, yeah, I mean, if y'all won't, y'all can come to the gym. We can get it busy. <laughs> These times he doesn't know, obviously. My boy Christian used to be a boxer as well. Um, so he doesn't know who we are, right? So I'm like, oh, sick. Like, dope, where's your gym at? And he's like, oh, it's just, you know, over there. But if y'all won't, you can come. We can get some work, you know, all that stuff. And I'm thinking... Bro, I would smack you up. He looks like he was like, I don't know, like a 55 kilo guy or something. Um, and then um, then I go, just before I go on the thing to start throwing body shots, I was like to him, oh, so like, he, oh yeah, he's, I said, so what do you do? And he said, me, I do boxing, I do Muay Thai, I do everything. I said, but what's your main sport? And he's like, boxing. So I was like, oh, sick. So how many fights you had? And he's like, oh, I ain't got no fights, man. I, I just get busy. I was like, you mean you don't have any profiles? He goes, no, 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 no profiles, but I get busy. <laughs> so, I <was> like, <laughs> so I was like, okay, so you had any amateur fights? 
is that no, not that even. Remember, I, I've been training ten years. I get busy. I do this all day, every day. It's my life. And I swear to you, yeah, he said it was so much chest that in that moment, I started to question, like, okay, so what does he do? Like, um, what, what's this part of boxing that I don't know about? Like, in a monologue for like, for like a half a second or something. Then I was like, shut the fuck up in my head. I think you know, yeah, you've ever had amateur fights or pro fights, or you're not a fighter. So I, was like, so I just confirmed, and I was like, so you've had no amateur fights. No, but I get real busy, man. You know, we, we out here, we work, we work all the time and whatever. And then, I was like, okay, and you've had no profile. I was like, no. So I'm thinking, this guy doesn't fight. He's just a guy that sells people dreams about how he gets busy. But he does it with so much chest and so much confidence that even me as a professional fighter was like second guessing if there's something that he was doing that I didn't know about. So imagine someone that doesn't know much about boxing, which is most of the population. That he's just finessing these people, but... I say that to say that that's the that's that's how much belief and commitment they have to whatever it is they're selling. That they actual hustlers out here. But there's a lesson in that, right? In that sometimes, Which is, sometimes you've got to be that delusional. If you're trying to get on, hmm. if you're trying to get on, like if you're trying to act, you need to be like, hey, I'm, I think I could be the next Marlon Brando if he was tall and Nigerian. Yeah. I mean, yeah, within reason, because when it's all said and done, when you meet someone who knows what they're talking about, like he met me, I left thinking he's a fool. But how many of you those know, exist? So, you're just playing the odds, right? Yeah, but if you're in the industry and you're talking to people in the industry, like, they'll be able to look through your shit. But I get what you're saying, though. The, the point still stands. You know, like, like, believe in your I'll, shit. I'll give you an example. Like When I go back and see the people I grew up with, Uma, they're guys that still have reputations from secondary school. No, mm -hmm. no one's. In fact, and and no one even knows where the reputation came from. You know when you you know when you sit down and someone will still say, "Hey, you see Kirk over there, man." I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. He's a serious guy, isn't he? I'm like, based on what? He's like, yeah, I'm not, I just heard he's a serious guy, man. I'm yeah, like, no one remembers. And he like, I've known that guy since I was 15. I don't think he's ever had a fight. I was like, you sure? I'm like, yeah. I don't think he's ever had a fight. But this guy's just had a rep. I don't even know from where. Maybe he shouted at a bouncer outside of Weatherspoons once, right? And that rep has stuck. Yeah. <laughs> and people and are too stuck. scared to challenge it because to challenge it, you have to fight the guy. And people are like, uh, I don't know. So he gets away with it. Yeah. But like you said, one day he'll meet someone who's like, ah, actually, I quite like to find out. Yeah. But until then, you've got to ride it for as long as you can because there's money in that. Yeah. It's uh yeah, it is a lesson in confidence for sure. It's like I agree. I, it's like I said about Lance Armstrong. I said, listen, people can say what they want about Lance Armstrong cheated, but for years that guy was a millionaire, he got all the women he want he he lived that life. You can never take that from him. And yeah. Yeah, it's that lesson that you gotta hustle to hustle. The hustle's the hustle, that's the lesson. But I was going to say, look, let's draw a line under there. I just realised we've gone over two hours. <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? We were oh, talking yeah, about doing hours, an hour yeah. before. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually exhausted. <laughs> oh, no, no, look, I am so grateful for this because this is, this is a, hell of, hell, of a hell of an episode. Man. I think we covered a lot of ground. I didn't know we were going to go that broad, but now it was necessary. Because people ask me, yeah, what's Uma up to? 
Yeah, I hope it, I hope people that are listening have listened this far. I hope it was engaging enough and insightful enough for people to listen this far. And remember, um, www.umarsadiq.com. That's what's up. For all your theatrical action, look, you need someone for The Expendables, the new Street Fighter 2 film, whatever. All of that. <laughs> I do the modelling, I do the acting. I even produce my own shorts. So, you know, I, I can help in that side too. If you need that work... Come at me. Let me know. Yeah. I'd like to come to the UK when I've got work to do. So if you want to hire me, if you know anyone that that can get me a work as a pundit, as a um, as a commentator, hey. you name it. Well, let you've me got to know. talk to Dan Z's now. Dan Dan's become the commentary king. Oh, is he commentating now? Yeah. yeah. And he, you know what? he's good. Oh, and I'll tell you why Dan's good. Most he's a people, fan. yeah, most people overthink what they're saying. Yeah. You just hear Dan be like. Oh gosh! Oh, I hope it's yeah. okay. I'm like, I'm yeah, like, and I'm like, that's <laughs> no, what I needed I, to hear. Yeah, Dan's always been like that. He's a, he's a. I haven't even heard the commentary he's done, but I just knew because <laughs> he's he's a fan of boxing first before anything. Yeah, I mean, that, and that and that's what makes him who he is. I always say he's a like boxing's true gentleman, man. He is. Yeah, you see yeah. him everywhere. You'll see. I mean, and he'll he'll help anyone he can. For sure. All right, man, Luma, listen, man, thanks very much. Man. I appreciate your time. Uh, like, this has been... A uh, good that's episode. cool, man. I, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This is... Um, it's been enjoyable. I'm tired, but only because I was working for that like, six hours before we came on. But, um, pardon me. All is good, man. It's been a pleasure. Like I said, have, enjoy the rest of your night. And um, I hope the listeners enjoy this episode. That was an incredibly draining interview. It was... There was a lot to take in, both just from a factual perspective and also from an emotional perspective, because yes, I'm creating content, but I'm also speaking to a friend and a friend who I'm always like, I hope he's okay out there because it's very brave stepping out. But th there are things that I loved about it. I loved the honesty about the Tudinov situation and what followed afterwards. I loved the honesty around the Lerone situation and even the Cody Davis situation. There was a lot of humanity, which you rarely get to see in boxing. Also, you know, good pockets of humor. And one of the things I did like, and it may have been a small bit, but it struck, it struck me that a relationship that Umar Sadiq and Ramla Ali built up in the amateurs persists to this day. And I like that because, I, you know, I talk about it a lot, but I say the friendships and the relationships you build in the amateurs are real. And they're the ones that tend to last well past your involvement in boxing. The people you meet in the professional game is transient. You're there, for, you're there for a purpose, and when you're no longer needed, you're moved on and someone else comes in. But that was, for me, two hours of really good content. I'm incredibly draining. I went, I went to sleep half tired, half wired. Um, you know, we ran that one pretty late into the night. But that's what we deliver for the public. And as I said in the intro, you know, if you love the content, feel free to share it. And just let, let me know what you think, because... I don't think you get conversations like that very often in boxing. I think it's normally with the aim of selling something, never with the aim of informing. I think a lot of people will be wiser two hours after than they were two hours before. So let me sign off at that point and say, whenever you choose to listen to this, have a great day. If it's a weekend, have a great weekend. If the weather holds up, stay sunny, stay warm, and stay safe out there. Take care, guys. Mm -hmm.